there was one point when we were about 5,000 feet up to face and Scott and I were at a, Steve was leading and Scott and I were at the belay and Scott goes, Hey man, look down there. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> he goes, the glacier. And I go, Scott, it's a glacier. We're in Alaska, of course. And I'm thinking, the fuck is wrong with Scott right now? <laughs> and, and he goes, it's so far down there. I'm like, yeah, we've, 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 we've climbed really high, really fast. And he goes, we couldn't get down if we tried. Ha. Huh. And you could be like, oh, my God, that's so terrifying. I'm like, no, it's the most liberating thing in the world. When retreat is still a possibility, there's like part of your mind is occupied with thinking about how you're going to do it. When retreat is no longer an option, it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm, I am free. I'm cut loose. It's only up. And, and an amazing sense of freedom because there is no longer a choice. Mm-hmm. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! You've been living in a dream world, Neo. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we talking about practice. Hey, Pete, on the dude's run. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see, you think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Pace and McKelvin. Usually when I record these intros, I have a pretty good idea of what I want to say. I give the guest's name, um, a handful of their notable accomplishments, maybe some things we've shared together that are unique, maybe how I know them. With this week's guest, Mark Twight, I'm honestly really at a loss as to how to introduce him. Um, he is unlike anyone I've ever met. If you Google Mark Twight and you pull up his Wikipedia page, you'll get some titles like pioneering mountaineer, author, celebrity trainer. He's done the physical training for Lots of Hollywood movies like 300, Wonder Woman, that sort of thing. But I don't really want to talk to you about all that stuff because that's not who Mark is to me. Um, I haven't actually spent that much time with Mark. But he's one of the most intriguing people I've ever met. And uh, someone that I feel I already know quite well and yet am not even close to knowing all of yet, if that makes sense. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Mark I know give you a little introduction into our conversation this week. Also unusual is the fact that he is the guest next week. We've already recorded two episodes together, and we've decided to uh, release them in quick succession here on back-to-back weeks. And honestly, I feel like we could do a series of 10 and still not even be close to covering all the material that we could. It would be a dream (laughs) for me to do a series of 10 with Mark Twight. I met Mark year before last on his podcast, the Dissect Podcast, at Rebecca's Private Idaho. Uh, We had a mutual friend who put us in touch, and uh, admittedly, I had no idea who Mark was. And I asked this mutual friend, you know, who is this guy? And he gave a sort of quick response, you know, he's a legendary mountaineer. I said, okay, whatever. We had a nice conversation. And then a handful of months later, I was reading this book, Endure, which I've spoken about on the podcast before, which is a recent book detailing 
the science and lots and lots of case studies about endurance and specifically athletic endurance. And there's a chapter in there where they're talking about mountaineering and the fastest known time on Mount Denali. And all of a sudden I see Mark Twight. And I can't continue reading. And all of a sudden this story unfolds about this three-person mission that Mark was a part of where they went for the fastest known time on Denali and just obliterated the record by going full kamikaze. They took only gels. Each individual had a pack of about 13 pounds each. And they almost died. They ran out of food far before they reached the summit. And they got to a point on the ascent where they realized the only way to survive was to press on, to continue going up. And in this podcast uh, that we recorded that you're about to listen to, Mark talks at length about that moment and how what he felt might have been a little bit different than what you'd expect. This podcast has an interesting story arc in a way. From near the beginning, we start talking about Denali. And at the end, we're still talking about Denali. It's it's the overarching storyline of the podcast. But throughout the podcast, we kind of dive down into other subjects, go off on different tangents, compare and contrast our various experiences with FKT efforts, My White Rim, and Mark Twight's many fastest known times. That experience up on Denali, where Mark was staring death in the face, is far, far, far from the only time that he's experienced that. The intensity of adventure experiences that this guy has has had has turned him into one of the deepest thinkers and most philosophical and inspiring individuals I've ever talked to. I hope you enjoy this uh, pretty unique conversation with one of the people that I look up to most these days. I think we're good. One of the, one of the things like, uh, I'm, I'm always curious about people's workflow, mm. right? Like, okay, so you, you're recording into the Zoom. Yep. Is it going onto an SD card? It is. And so you're going to pop that SD card out. You're going to yep. plug it into your laptop. You're going to open Adobe Audition. Yep. Sort of. You're, sort of. Okay. <laughs> the difference is uh, I... Put it into a Dropbox transfer portal. Okay. Which goes to my younger sister, Lily. Okay. And then she opens... I don't even know what she's using right now, software-wise. Okay. Yeah, but that's that's where I think... Everything else was correct, yeah. Okay. So, cause, <laughs> but cause what's interest- funny about this is this is the first time I've had a guest. And usually, you know, I pull out my stuff and I'm like, yeah, this is my podcast equipment. Yeah. And now I pull out my stuff and I'm like, Mark, uh, this is my podcast equipment. Don't judge me. <laughs> no, it's, I, I, I wouldn't because I just look and I go, wow, this is a totally slick mobile kit. It is way slicker than mine. <laughs> like well, I'm, 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 it's, uh, it's yeah, it, mobile. You're right. I mean, we're doing this in my van and yeah. uh, drinking beers in a public park <laughs> um, and we're sweaty. Yeah. And uh, we, I've had a crazy busy day and you just got off the bike and um, we're recording this podcast because, yeah, this equipment is, is slick and easy. But at some point, 
people ask me what I want to do when I retire from racing, and this is way too premature to say, but I would love to do this, and I would love to have a studio. I was going to say, I would love to be like you guys, <laughs> except that we are. Um, and I guess there's a way to sort of earn it. Like we, our method for supporting it or you know bringing any revenue um, isn't. Like I just refuse to have advertising. Why is that? Um, because I think it's uh, I, as sort of towards the end of my climbing career when I was, you know, I, the, the last couple of years of my climbing career, I, I didn't have any formal sponsors. I had a relationship with Patagonia. That was about it. Um, and that was more of a thing where I got paid for projects, not like a monthly stipend or whatever. And part of the reason that um, I stopped doing the whole sponsorship thing is because of how the, the, the influence, whether the pressure, you know, whether there was like guidance from the sponsor to do something or not, I always put that on myself unconsciously. Hmm. And I st it started affecting the decisions that I was making. And, um, and, and, and I think the same thing for, for our podcast is like, I don't want to have a commercial association where I feel like I need to edit myself yeah. because of, and so the only products that we try to sell and we forget all the time are the things that we make. Mm. Um, but we, you know, we have some supportive programs. So you buy one of our t-shirts and it costs a hundred dollars. Mm. Like it's, yeah. a, it's not, a it's a donation. It's a donation. It's a donation yeah. t-shirt. Yeah. But I also want to get any time someone gives us money. It's really important to me that we give them something in return. Mm. So the zines, same thing. It's, mm. you know, the 35 bucks. Yeah. It's a, you know, I don't know what the value is. Yeah. I, I couldn't assign, but we're just like, okay, that's what we're going to charge. That's expensive. That, if someone were to just pick this up and yeah. look at how thick it is, yeah. $35 would sound expensive. Yes. But it, having not read it yet, it could be way more valuable than $35. But and to some people, it probably is way, way, way more valuable than $35. Potentially, because <laughs> there aren't very many, like... So you're selling you're selling out of these at thirty five dollars a piece. Yeah, but we typically Damn. only you know we're only producing three hundred. You know we have we're, well we we're printing you know three hundred and eighty usually right now, but we, about eighty of those are giveaways mm. to people that mm. we have. You know it's friends, it's this and that. But um, I feel very fortunate to be in that eighty. <sighs> well, when I was on the <laughs> way down today, I was like, I didn't bring a book. Mm. But that would have been a lot for, for the next one. Well, and speaking of books. The the thing that set the hook, I have a feeling this is going to be one of those podcasts that is just all over the map, so y'all are just going to have to strap in for the ride here. But um, the reason that I jumped on making this happen now, because it was very short notice. I mean, you, you drove, I, what, what did I give you, 48 hours? Something like that. And yeah. you said, yeah, I'll drive over. Yeah. Um, was because I'm reading this book, Endure. Yes. And uh, I got to this section about fuel fueling yeah and then fkts and this was right before my white rim fkt attempt okay and i was like oh this is awesome this is exactly what i want to be reading right now and then all of a sudden i read denali fastest known time mark twight and i was like whoa 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 whoa, whoa. <laughs> this is the dude that i did a podcast with a few months ago and to be fair i didn't know that much about him but i've been following him on instagram and getting a feel and wait he did this this is crazy. Okay. He's coming on the podcast in three, two, one. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's why we're here right now. Is, Did you is get a chance endure. to listen to the episode that I recorded with Alex? Uh, I can't with, remember what number. With uh, Andy. Okay, so so I did an episode. Um, it, 
and I don't know what number it is because I, for, uh, I, didn't I forget know these that. things, but I did, I did a, a podcast really? with Alex Hutchinson. Yeah, really? because And shortly after the book came out, we were both at this um, event at the Santa Fe Institute, and it was um, – he, he was like the bridge between the scientists and um, – and then there were a couple of, you know, knuckle-draggers like me in a way, like <laughs> – like every, you know, we've figured stuff out, but I have no formal education in this stuff. But okay. It's been, you know, trial by fire and error um, <laughs> through life. But I, I pinged him because I, you know, got a copy of the book and I read through the the, the thing. And he was, and uh, I said, Alex, we got to, we got to sit down and have a podcast because um, you made some assumptions based on what you read regarding that ascent and our fueling strategies. Ah. Did he not and consult you before he? No, we never talked bef- before. That's crazy. So it. Uh, to be fair, there's a lot of people oh, referenced in that book, and it would have oh been God. insane for him to talk to everybody. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, continue. It was <laughs> it, it, so it was a neat. Um, it, it was a neat experience. We sat down in my hotel room at that event and uh, and just had a you know hour and a half or two hour conversation. Can't really remember. And it it was it was really neat because a bunch of different ideas came up about. Mm. Um, I mean, there, there's the fueling question and in, and the fat adaptation stuff and how much fat I was actually eating on that when he had focused, he had, you know, got stuck on 48 gels per person, right. you know, basically. Right, 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 right. You know, we were going off, but the, in the quantity of fat that I took and ate and that I generally eat is higher, I think, than, than, than uh, would normally be thought of for, you know, humans i don't okay. know anyway so, <clears throat> let's jump right in okay then let's talk about this so <laughs> but wait a second let me let me just okay, stop yeah. right yeah so yeah. you're reading this book you're yeah. right before white rim yeah you don't you, you can't have any new information to apply right true. And, like it no it was it was more no you're right i wasn't about to go do a fat like, update fat adaptation well probably thing. wouldn't have time wouldn't have time. Um, it would have. I mean, there were so many constraints around this thing, but one of them being, I have an entire race schedule of events that are less than six hours. Yeah. Um, like last week, I just did two ninety-minute races. I mean, fat adaptation does not work for that. Nope. I would go very slowly. Um, it was more like, whoa! I know this guy. I knew he was a legendary climber. <laughs> Um, but he's in this book that I'm really, really enjoying, and I'm getting even more stoked about this FKT concept. So, okay, rewinding. Um, in a minute here, I'm going to ask you to, to paint the picture, but um, what, what was it? Three weeks ago, I guess, now. I did this Moab White Rim Fastest Known Time thing. Three weeks? I don't even remember. I'm not going to try to put a time on um, And there were, there, in the mountain bike world, this is an unusual thing. The FKT concept, at really the, at this time, yeah. Okay. There are very few. There's uh, the the probably the most famous is the Tour Divide, um, which goes from Banff, Canada, down to Antelope Wells, New Mexico, two thousand some odd. Uh, it's an insane number of miles. My dad's done it twice. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, he's 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 a crazy guy. Um, there's the Cocopelli Trail, yep. which Rebecca Rush has has the, has the record on. Um, there's the Arizona Trail. Obviously, Race Across America is super famous. Um, but in the mountain bike world, like real rugged mountain biking, we don't have very many of these things. Probably the the crown jewel of like rugged mountain biking FKTs would be the Colorado Trail at this point. But anyway, it's very popular yeah. in the running world. It's popular in the, the certainly climbing the and climbing world. Yeah. And so we were trying to 
bring some of that to the mountain bike world. Um, you did an FKT a while ago, a, a big a, one, a famous one. And I read about it in this book, Endure, and it got me super stoked. And one thing that struck me is, and you can color this in a minute, but when you're doing an FKT on a mountain, it's pretty simple. You just go to the top. With the white rim, it's a loop. And so we were we were struggling with, okay, start and end point. Do we maximize speed? So do I start at the bottom of this huge climb and do it when I'm fresh? Do I do it from the most common start and end point? Blah, blah, blah. With Denali, which is the one that I'm referencing, let's just go through it. Go into as much detail as you're willing because I'm fascinated by this and the book doesn't go into it too much. Um, yeah. Give me the give me the full like, what year was this? Uh, everything. I mean, it's it, it's we have to do a little time traveling. Yeah, space. of course, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> um, it, it, to, to sort of lay the foundation, um, I think I was part of this generation of you know, like one of the first you know generations of climbers to use quote artificial training. To what improve, do you mean by that? To improve sport performance in the mountains. Um, it means that I wasn't, you know, up until that point, there were, you know, people weren't necessarily, you know, yes, Messner was going running, you know, as, as fitness training. Walter Bernardi would, you know, go ski touring and then he would come down and he'd find the most difficult conditions he could find um, in order to you know, strengthen his legs and his mind. Herman Buell, you know, rode his bike from Austria to Switzerland, sold northeast, northeast face of the Pisbadil, rode his bike back. You know, there were guys that were like doing some alternative stuff to prepare for the mountains but um when we started there was more uh structure to it like bringing interval training into things bringing you know taking ideas from other sport because everything that i was doing at the time was uh my whole thesis has always been like to control what you can control because then it leaves you know more horsepower available to deal with the chaos which will mm -hmm. inevitably occur mm -hmm. um and so we go back to 1988, the FKT, I guess, is, I mean, the speed record that I have on a 900-meter high frozen waterfall in the Canadian Rockies called Slipstream um, still stands to this day. Really? Yeah. Wow. And I don't know who's <clears throat> even been close. I, I, I Basically, you know, for a variety of reasons, ideal conditions. Yeah. You know, it's like kind of really good ice, really good mindset. I was willing to die for it also. I didn't. And um, how long? Uh, two take? hours and four minutes. Okay. For I think I think they call it nine hundred and twenty-five meters. It's a sprint. T technically, it's not that difficult. Um, and the guy that I walked in with also soloed it that day, and he came. He was about I think three hours twenty or something total. So for me, the fitness piece was always super important. Mm. And and then we started applying this to bigger and bigger objectives of. And, and the first day that, or the first time that I did an enchantment in the Alps, I went 26 hours nonstop, climbed three peaks, you know, all, all under my own power, every, the, the ascent and descent all under my own power, and, and realized, like, okay, yeah, I'm wasted. Well, hmm. in fact, when I got on the train down in Les Uches to get back up to Chamonix proper, I fell asleep and <laughs> missed a stop and ended up in the wrong town. But <laughs> I'm going to pause for just one second yeah. because what I'm... Im I'm so excited for this chat because this podcast is called the adventure stash, which can, which <laughs> is a adventure is, is broad and on purpose 
I mean, we have writers, we have healers, all kinds of different types of folks. And so I don't want to put adventure in a box. But from what comes to mind for most people when they hear the word adventure, you're probably the guest that most encompasses that at this time. I mean, it, you're you're ripping through the mountains by foot. I mean, that's as... It's for a lot of people, that's probably the definition of adventure, which is way cool. I, 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 I agree, but it's, and when I was doing it, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Mm. But then I met people doing other stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I think the white room thing, like listening to the Reggie Miller podcast and how excited that guy is about riding his mountain bike, that was eye opening. And I mean, to me, just like, oh, okay. I know, a, I actually have a friend up in Salt Lake who's that tall mm. and, you know, a couple of national titles on the road and, but that dude, you know, dwarfs and you can't make a bike that looks appropriate. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, and I'm yeah, just yeah. wondering, cause you had mentioned, you know, basically in passing your center of gravity, dot, yeah. dot, you know, and yeah. I'm just thinking like, Oh my God, yeah. there's, is there a 31 er? Right. Yeah, yeah, I know. You know like, I'm 6'2 <laughs> in my seat post situation looks silly. <laughs> Reggie at six seven. I mean, his bike set up. Uh, yeah, it's pretty. But just hearing it, it's that experience of like I rode up the hill behind my house. Mm, yeah, and I didn't know what was up there. I saw it in with new eyes. Yes, I had a conversation, and okay. that is adventure right there. Exactly. It doesn't need to be exactly. You know, my friend Ben, who he and Tarka, they skied to the South Pole and back on mm. their. You know, basically finishing the journey that um, Scott tried to finish but died. You know, on the way back, and. Like that's that's big ass adventure. Yeah. You know, that you know, one of the fellows under the Red Bull umbrella who, you know, jumped uh, was it a balloon that that was somewhere in outer space when yeah, that guy Felix Baumgartner. Like, <laughs> oh my god, like, dude. That's some serious adventure right there. <laughs> that's the other extreme of adventure. <laughs> so there's riding up my hill, you know, the hill behind my house, and there's a guy jumping out of a you know, from space and yeah. landing somewhere on Earth. I like and we'll get more into but. this, but one thing that fascinates me about you is uh, how much time you spend in your mind analyzing all of this stuff. Like in a lot of ways, you're you're a philosopher, I think. And one thing that I like is in thinking about those those places that adventure takes your mind. Felix Baumgartner jumping from space was at a certain place in his mind, in his spirit, whatever you want to yeah. call it. Reggie Miller riding his bike out his back door and up into the hills behind his house that he'd never seen was probably in a strikingly similar place to Felix Baumgartner. Yes. I think that's incredible. That is awesome. And, and, and they're divert, you know, they're, they're these diverse things. And I was having a conversation. There's a, um, I have a good friend, he's a climber artist, this guy Boone Speed, and, and he's really involved, um, with, North facing and, and, and climbing stuff, right? So, he's, and he mentioned something. He said, you know, climbing happens in indoor gyms in the Bronx and mm. climbing happens on the top of Mount Everest. Yeah. And he goes, it's one of those sports that maybe the only one where it happens in, you know, a radically urban environment and a radically out there wilderness environment. Interesting. And, Interesting. And, and I think there's, you, you know, we can get get trapped up in these definitions of adventure uh, a friend in England 
um, this guy Alistair Humphreys, and he's the guy who basically coined the term microadventure. Huh. And he's done. He rode his bike around the world, and he's done some big ass adventures. But he, 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 he started this movement in England, and when it kind of, you know, got spread by way of social media, of like, yeah, you get off work at five. You get your bike, you put it on a train, you get to the, you know, outside the M25, you know, loop out, you know, get on your bike, ride into the hills, spend the night, get, you know, boil some water, make some soup, whatever, have a nice time, ride back and then be, be at work in the morning. And he's a guy who's done some really crazy stuff, but he does these little miniature adventures and makes adventure. I mean, his whole mission, it seems, is to make adventure accessible to everyone Mm. and to define it in such a way that it doesn't that you don't have to go to the mountains. And that's what was cool about hearing Reddy's story to me. Yeah, you don't have it, to go toe-to-toe with the person on Instagram that you follow that has 500,000 followers. Yeah. yeah. You, you don't have to do that to have adventure. No, and, and there's, you know, I was out riding today, and there's people going, you know, out there on the same, on the same terrain as me um, in their razors or side-by-sides or whatever you call them. And... Uh, I was saying, well, we're having, we're out here, and we're each having our experience. Right. Yeah. And Theirs is very different, but we're still having. But we're still having yeah. some sort of adventure. Yeah. You know, that's out, especially if you come from an you know urban environment, and you like get to go cruise around in the desert. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, being here in Moab on Jeep Week. What do they call this officially? I, I Jeep t- Safari I, Week or Jeep. Uh, takes over every square inch of Moab week. I don't know. But it's my one hesitation you, when you suggested. Yeah. I mean, you need go no further than here right now to see how much we as humans are appreciating experience these days. I mean, one of the things that makes me most excited is uh, I listen to a lot of podcasts and um, one that I listen to relatively often more for staying in tune with the business world, I guess, is the Tim Ferriss show. Okay. And he's very in tune with trends and this, that, and the other, which is uh, not always um, ideal, but sometimes it is very helpful. Yes. And one thing that he keeps coming back to is that right now, people want to spend their money on experiences rather than things. And, I mean, there are so many people out here right now enjoying outside. Even if they're in a Jeep and they have music blasting, they're outside. Yeah. Uh, it's a completely different experience than going for a hike without headphones in by yourself, but they're outside experiencing the, experiencing the outdoors. You, and can't, you can't go for a hike by yourself this week. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But anyway, but, going, going, sorry, go but, ahead. But, it, but it's true. Yeah. It, it, what he, I, I think what he's, I think he's maybe a bit optimistic in, in that assessment, but, but I don't disagree. Because I think uh, the maybe let's say one of the good sides of social media, mm, yeah, <laughs> is to to have communicated the idea that you can go do these things. Mm. Like, oh, you live in X hyper-developed urban area. There's stuff to do. Mm. There's like you can go out and do these. As, yes, you you can spectate. And I spectate, you know, that's, it's, it's, 
it's uh, it's the season of the cl- you know the big classics yeah. racing. So yeah, I'm, yeah, you know yeah. I will every you know one of those big races on a bike. I w- you know I will I will spectate. Yeah, bike I, bike racing classics. You're talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, and then all the gnarly one days. I mean the, those the, and and uh, um, so I'll spectate. But my rule is like if I do, if I don't ride, I, c- I don't get to I can't watch. Hmm. Interesting. Because. You know, that's a reward. Right. To like to be able to just sit there, turn my brain off and and the learning potential from watching a bike race for me is I somewhat limited. Um sometimes I watch some bike racing and I think aliens have landed because <laughs> I don't understand what I'm seeing. Yes. You know, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah, a way. Yeah, 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 Especially, you know, like mountain bike world cup or yeah. <laughs> um or yeah, some of the I don't know. Uh, Chris had like sent a link to some other crazy downhill stuff that's mm. going on. Chris Warden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, <clears throat> okay, that is. I, I shoot a monkey into space. The same fucking thing. <laughs> like I, I was just like, how are you? How is this possible? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. I went to <laughs> when I went to Red Bull Rampage last fall. It, I very rarely have I had an experience where I have trouble believing my eyes. Okay, but that happened. I mean, it is it is so stressful to be a spectator at Red Bull Rampage. And I was I was there with a couple other Red Bull athletes supporting some of the riders that okay. were in the event. So, um the the most recent guest that I just had on the podcast, Camille LeBlanc Bazinet, I met her at Red Bull Rampage. Okay. And we were there supporting our friend Carson Storch who was in the in the event. And we were there like supporting each other from a moral support standpoint. And she was visibly shaking. Like she was so upset by the, not in a negative way, but just in an awe-inspired way. Emotionally moved. Yeah. For sure. And then Carson does his thing and he crashes like three times in practice and still somehow goes up the mountain and sends his run. And it is, it is so my, and Literally, the the twenty five people that are capable of doing that thing mm-hmm. are there doing it. Okay. No one else in the world is capable of doing that, and there. Are, and, oh, it's so crazy. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear you anyway. say that. <laughs> you know, suggest that you couldn't necessarily believe your eyes because, uh, I. Yeah, I mean, I I actually sent texted that to Rebecca today. I was just like. This is proof that aliens are here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, speaking of aliens, yeah. rewinding. That okay. was a crazy tangent. Denali. Big One mountain. of your biggest adventures. Yeah. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what happened? What but, did you do? So in the do... Let's... Okay, so... <clears throat> I... I there is this background, and we started talking about fitness and speed in the mountains and that kind of thing. And, and then uh, over the course, essentially, of the next, you know, well, from 88 was, I mean, we did some crazy, 88 was a huge year. Um, <laughs> but from that point, I could see ahead hmm. and realized, like, okay, there's, there are. After your the, ascent of the. Of, of Slipstream, but I was yeah. also, um, we Made an, a, t- a pretty good attempt on this peak uh, in Pakistan. This face—it's the—it's the—it's the face with the most vertical relief in the world. It's about fourteen thousand vertical feet. What? Of, yeah. 
a face that's 14,000 feet. Yeah, I mean, it's not like El Cap steep the entire way. I mean, it's right. something like, like virtually all of it these days would probably be skiable. Holy you know, shit. I mean, but 14,000, that is but insane. It's, 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 it's crazy. And the, the only time it had been climbed before we got there, it had taken over three months. For these guys to do it and like fix ropes and yeah, see, you know, I mean, basically siege this thing. And, What's the and, what does it top out at? Uh, over twenty six thousand. It's eighty eighty one twenty five meters. So <sighs> it's like the ninth highest in the world or something. Uh, Nanga Parbat and and so we in the Himalayas. I have to assume. Well, it's so it is Nanga Parbat sits by itself. It's sort of between the Himalayan chain and the Karakoram. Okay. So Himalayas are you know more uh, Nepal Tibet right. zone. And then um, Karakoram is more Pakistan and, and uh, drifting into China a little bit. You know, there's a, a shared border. Uh, Nanga Parbat sits by itself. It's, it, you know, it's the killer mountain. Um, I mean, my friend, old friend, a girl I climbed a peak in Nepal with in 86. Um, her, she, later, she died in, on K2 in 96. And her son was, um, Tom Ballard, was just killed uh, on Nanga Parbat this winter. Um, it, it's, it's a, it is, uh, is, is mountaineering the most dangerous sport out there? Do you think? I mean, we lost I, three yesterday. Yeah, we can, we don't need to talk about that. Uh, I, I imagine uh, I wouldn't blame you for not being ready, but I mean, every time I turn around, dude, yeah, it's kind of fucked. It's pretty, <clears throat> it's, it is pretty fucked. I mean, in that, the, you know, it's just, yeah, the most recent incident, um, you know, it's 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 bad luck. You know, it's wrong place, wrong time. It's um, you know they they weren't like at the limit. Every one of those guys was more than up to the technical challenge of that route. That route, a bit, you know, was climbed by. You want to um, just name if you're comfortable. The yeah, th- yeah, the three guys. Uh, yeah, I mean, and how well you knew them, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd, I'd not met David or Hans, um, but Jess and you know friends with his dad, and I've just. You know, I'm, and all I'm thinking now, you know, when I, I, I know that uh, a good friend who climbed a bunch with, with Jess and, um, you know, his dad, John, they're going up to try and, you know, recover the bodies, you know, help recover the bodies before, you know, it snows another meter or whatever and they're, they're gone. And, and I, I just, I, get, I can't imagine. I mean, John was a, you know, he was a great inspiration, sometime mentor, you know, a someone who's important to me in my climbing career and I just can't imagine going and you know trying to recover your you know your son's body from from, and uh, but it's you know and to look at that and just go okay those were three of the best guys in the world right maybe I mean certainly in David's case and and, and Hans I mean they're like among the you know that might be the podium you know in a sense interesting and and that but that whole generation has just been decimated why is I mean, that? Good, interesting question. You know, I think it comes in cycles. There was a period where all of the best climbers from Great Britain, you know, all got wiped out. Jeez. And, you know, sort of that's like starting with Alex McIntyre getting killed and then uh, Al Rouse and then Boardman and Tasker and Roger Baxter-Jones. I mean, the guys from that era that are still around, it's just like, okay, you got Bonington, who was kind of elder statesman a little bit, and then 
Um, but it was the wave after that, guys who were actually pushing a lot harder that all, you know, get through the short straws. And, um, and, and sometimes it's, it's bad luck. And I'm trying to formulate it, this thing, cause it's not, guys aren't getting, weren't getting killed on the, I mean, exception of Boardman and Tasker, you know, they were trying to do something that was way, way at the outer limit of what had been done to to that point they were trying to climb the northeast ridge of everest and they disappeared in the pinnacles um and but a lot of times you know roger baxter jones got killed with you know by serac fall with you know he's guiding clients mm. um al rouse got killed on k2 after climbing to the top without oxygen bad storm you know bad year when a bunch of people got chopped and and i think there's this and uh, I mean, I've always had this thesis that there's there's a bank account full of luck, hmm. and there's no balance sheet. Hmm. You never know when right you're gonna you know go to make a withdrawal and are like ah overdrawn. Yeah. Wow, that's an interesting metaphor. And and <clears throat> I think, and then you start factoring in okay, and then if you depending on how sort of spiritual or mystical you want to get with one you know you connection to other human beings and the mountains themselves it's like man i don't i want to i want to know my climbing partner's history i want to know what how much he's spent how much he's accumulated like the more good decisions you make i think the more good luck goes in the bank <laughs> right yeah fair <laughs> you know and and because i don't want to be with him when his luck runs out because i might get to be i might get dragged along for the ride and i i think there is something just the ultimately the man hours of risk and uh um, you're just there's this exposure um, to it, and and I and I I think a lot of what's happened recently, like let's just say with that generation, those guys, were, you know, pushing the boat out pretty far. Yeah, and the risk gets and, somewhat normalized. And the risk gets normalized, and the more and and every time you have a positive outcome. Your relationship to the risk, like your your ability to assess the risk, is modified. Yep. Yep. It doesn't get any less. It's just like okay, I'm looking at this differently. Yep. Because now I've done, I've rolled these dice and it's come up good, you know, three times. Yeah. Uh, so it's sometimes you can look at a situation and go, oh yeah, they made these decisions that were, you know a chain of decisions that were wrong. And so it's actually makes sense that they got killed. And then other times you look at it and you're like, they didn't fucking do anything wrong. Yeah. And this kind of seems like one of those times. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, that route is not, um, I mean, the first ascent was actually, I don't know if it got, had, it might've been repeated, but the first ascent was, Barry Blanchard, Scott Backey, and Steve House. And Scott and Steve were with me on, or I was with them on Denali. I'll put it like that. Cause, um, uh, um, and, you know, technically, like I said, it was the, the well within, uh, so far inside the limits um, for Jess and David and Hans. And, and, uh, and I talked to Scott yesterday, and and he's he basically said, you know, that was that was not one of my favorite routes. Hmm. He said it was super fucking dangerous, and and um, 
Yeah, they had some trouble with falling debris. Um, you know, not to this extent, but Barry got super hurt and um, had to get uh, helicoptered off, you know, sort of partway down the descent. And, um, yeah, it, it, I, I think, that, that, yeah, an accumulation of bad luck. Um, uh, whatever, but but not like, okay, I'm pushing the absolute limits of this technology. I mean, if you start, you know, like, looking at wingsuit flying and stuff like that, then, you know, a lot of those accidents are you know just because of the audacity right in a way like, <clears throat> yeah yeah and there isn't a, as much of a spectrum it, with wingsuiting no <laughs> no it does seem it's kind all of like on an, one end it, it, it does seem like there's an on off <laughs> yeah. kind of a switch and, pretty uh, binary <laughs> yeah uh, um i i a bunch of friends who do that, but I can't. I hesitate to comment because yeah. You know, well, it's a, it's a different uh, quick question. Way. So, quick, yeah. quick question, tangent question that just came to mind. What's your perspective and take on um, Alex Honnold's uh, ascent? Um, modern expression of, I mean, it was it was going to happen sooner or later. You know, incredible. And, um, and and it's one of those things that, that unfortunately, it's really hard uh, for people to understand. Yeah. You know, and, and I think, you know, the movie is so well-received because you know the outcome. Right. He lives. Yeah. He gets it done. And you're... You know, and everybody I've, I've talked to who's watched it, they're all, you know, even fellow climbers are just like, yeah, my palms were sweating. I mean, I know, you know, guys who know Alex or gals who know Alex and, 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 uh, and know the outcome and everything and know everything that went into it, you know, all of the years of preparation and stuff. And, uh, um, and I, I, don't tip, I don't watch climbing movies. Uh, what is that? Um, Similar reasons to why you decided not to have sponsors in, later in your career? Oh, not nah, well, not because it would influence me necessarily, but because I prefer to have, um, to not to have the blow by blow. Mm. I'm more interested in the sort of spiritual impact than the detailed impact, mm. and, um, and and some of them are just. Like, and this started with, uh, I I mean, I'll always watch the Iger Sanction because it's not really a climbing movie. It's a (laughs) spy movie, but uh, that has some climbing in it. But, um, but it it started with touching the void and, and, uh, my friend Kelly Cordes saw it and he goes, dude, I don't know if you want to see that. He goes, it, it, they got it. So he said it was so horrifyingly Mm. accurate Mm. that I didn't really like it that much. Mm. And Kelly's been through the shit and, Mm. and, uh, um, and I'm just thinking, okay, if Kelly can't, well, there's no way that I'll be able to take it or nor, you know, and uh, so, so it just kind of became a, a thing. And, you know, maybe one of these days I'll, I mean, I, I would, I think, let, let's just say of the two films that came out and two climbing films that came out roughly at the same time. Yeah. Um, if I watch one of them. It'll be the Don Wall film. So you haven't seen either? No. Interesting. No. Interesting. 
That's fair. Uh, I, I that's I actually that's really cool. That's way cool. Because I like to. I mean, again, I don't want the blow by blow. I mm. want to. I I I know what you know. People are like, oh my god, that you know, uh, they they, they climbed the Don Wall and you know free climbed this thing in seven days. And I'm like, no, it was like seven years in seven <laughs> days. Or you know, <laughs> like. I love and, that, and, yeah. and that's the the hmm. thing that you know if you just think about it, they just go, oh yeah, Payson did this thing in six, in five hours and forty five minutes. No, 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 no. It was like ten years and five hours and forty five minutes. And but there's a part of it that won't that due to the constraints of the medium and how people relate to media. Well, we don't get to show the entire ten years, and it and it will only be I'm guessing be you know mentioned in passing right because it's you know it's the it's the event it's the challenge it's the thing yeah that is the draw and and then you take that to I, social media and the five hours and 45 minutes is a three-line caption with a photo talk about reductionism <laughs> like uh. and, and 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 that i'll watch because it's foreign for me and it's why i watch bike racing it's foreign to me it's it's something that I'm that I'm still trying to learn. It's something that I'm, you know, that uh, it's the thing that that inspires me now. Let's say, and so I watch that stuff. But the but the climbing things, I'm it's like, man, I've I've been pretty deep down that road, and um, and and I'll, I will read. I will be inspired by that. I'll have conversations with people about it. But I I. It's uh, it's it's a yeah, it's a difficult thing. Yeah, I mean that's fair. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's that's fair. That's a really interesting perspective. Um, and we'll get to your relationship with the bike, but we will get through this Denali story. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Back to Denali. Back to Denali. Um, 1988. Well, so so this I so the, the the trajectory started in in that time frame of of realizing that, okay, we can go for, there's the speed component, but then there's the endurance component. And if you look at the, okay, the speed ascents that, that I, I made either in the Canadian Rockies or in the Alps, um, there, I would call that the intensity. But then we started realizing like, oh, if I, if I can train myself to climb continuously for 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours. Well, there's a lot that goes of, of infrastructure that can go away. Like if I'm not taking a sleeping bag, if I'm not taking a tent, if I'm only concerned about food and fuel, psychological management and, and the team dynamic, then we can accomplish a ton of stuff. And if you're not bound to like the natural circadian rhythms of, you know, and your, your eight hour work day of when, oh yeah, I go climbing and then I stop when it's, you know, time to stop. And you're just like, no, you just keep doing it. Just keep going. <clears throat> yeah. That's exactly, and, I had mm -hmm. a, a similar, <laughs> I asked Sasha to Julian kind of a similar mm -hmm. question. And her point was, we get so fixated on these, these three meals a day, certain liters of water per day, sleep, nine hours a night starting at 10 p.m. thing. But if you're on a wall and those things aren't there, you just keep going. Yeah. And it's fine. <laughs> and it's fine. And, and, you, and, and, and you carry some of that liberation from this fixed schedule back down with you when you go. Mm, interesting. And, um, 
and that'll get overwritten for you know the the the, the drama or the trivia whatever you want to call it uh, of everyday life will you know kind of get you to conform again at some point and and each time you break out the but each time you break out you'll you do so with this with a bigger map with more sort of opportunity available because of what you had done the the time before and and that was really the cycle in the in the mountains that um you know i'd gone 26 hours nonstop, and then uh in 1994 scott backies and i <clears throat> climbed a route on mount hunter in alaska where the second you know day in flashing air quotes here um we went you know 43 hours nonstop essentially so we climbed i think 15 hours or 16 hours the first day chopped a ledge slept and then from that point how long did you sleep I don't know, night. I, I mean, like, you know, enough. Um, and everything on that ascent, it was just, we were starting to learn how to go light. And the, the, the North Buttress Mount Hunter at that time had, I think, two routes on it. Um, French route and uh, would have been from 86, I think. I'm trying to remember when. Grison got killed. Yeah, I think it would have been 86. Eve Tedeschi and Benoit Grison. Um, uh, and they'd climbed that in six days, and the route that Mugstump had sort of pioneered but had been finished by um, Todd Biller and Doug Cluin. I mean, that had been climbed as fast as like nine days, but in long, as many as 14. Mm. Um, and so we set off with enough food and fuel to cover us for 72 hours because that's the kind of hubris we were... <laughs> running at the time <laughs> um, <laughs> and, okay. and and uh how old at, were you at this time uh i'm just four, the yeah. word hubris and age interesting <laughs> concept yes um 94 30 mid 30s okay yeah so Some, it's somewhat very uh well traveled and experienced but with plenty of hubris left over potentially but, <laughs> but also balanced by humility i mean this yeah. is this is you know this is the concept i've been working on for the last year and it started um actually at that uh um event with alex hutchinson at the santa fe institute where author um, of indoor of indoor yep. and um and i wasn't meant to speak i was just gonna there to attend and you know listen and learn some stuff because they were the, the whole the concept was um uh the idea was you know how participation in a team influences individual performance and how an individual's contribution to the team and um, changes team performance. And can these things be explained math, you know, oh, by, interesting. you know, uh, in a mathematical sense, eventually. Can you predict it? Yeah. So to speak. More, yeah. <laughs> and so there was a bunch of statisticians there. There were, huh. you know, it was a, it was a fascinating very cool. thing. Um, but at the, on the last day, I just, I, uh, uh, lady who organized it, I said, you got to give me 20 minutes because I know that this guy left and that 20 minutes is available and I need to try and balance this from my perspective because I'm, I have been the numbers guy, but, um, and she said, well, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, the, the thing that I'd been working on the last couple of days, um, is called mystics, not statistics. Hmm. And, uh, and this is, um, so I hypothesize, you know, when we start to talk about sort of first principles or best, you know, this, that, whatever. And I, and I just think that, you know, there's you 
without humility, you can't learn. But without hubris, you won't execute. Huh, and the like combination that. of humility and hubris is element number 119. I just named it that for whatever reason, um, which is human. Hmm. That is so interesting. Because you needed a certain amount of humility. Like if we just, I'll just take it to the white room thing. Like there had to be a certain amount of humility to go out and like things like that don't get done without, I'm not going to say rehearsal necessarily, but practice, yeah. research, discussion. Like you have to be willing to learn yeah. in order to figure out how to do it. But to kick off with X number of gels and two water bottles, that's some hubris. Yeah. Well, and just thinking that I could like, do it as hubris, like thinking that I, <clears throat> that I was that I had the fitness to go faster than anyone else had, is hubris. And if that hubris hadn't been there, I wouldn't even have done the thing. Probably. Exactly. Yeah. So I think That's it's essential so interesting. at any age in yeah. life. I mean, it's still it's like okay, I, this, this book I just made. I mean, it's a total. It there's the humility of like okay, I need to, I, you know, I suck and I need to learn more. Mm. Right. And um, there's that part of it. But then there's the hubris of just like, fuck, I paid the dues. I've done the work. I've learned. The reason we made the zine is so I could learn all of the elements of design and layout and stuff so I could make the book. And, and then to do it, it's actually execute it to like take real money and hand it over to the printer. And like that's a, that's a vote of, you know, confidence in myself. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so – I think this, this hubris was, was there to go up on Mount Hunter in 94 um, with only, you know, 72 hours of food and fuel. And, um, and we, we fucking waited probably. I mean, we were there easily a month of, of storms waiting. Oh. Um, and, you know, we tried a different route, realized it was more technically difficult than we were, than our style that we were trying to explore would allow that you know a couple weeks later that same month of may 94 greg child and uh, michael kennedy actually did that route which became the wall of shadows one of the most technically difficult routes on on mount hunter um scott and i weren't up for it and scott you know we when we tried and we came down you know at some point and scott goes man that's the closest i've ever take come to taking a 200 foot fall in the mountains <laughs> I was like, I'm glad you didn't, because I'm pretty sure the anchors would have ripped. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> um, so that was wrong for us, and you know, we did some acclimatization ski tours and shit like that, and you know, um, uh, you know just waiting for because we we wanted at least a two day good forecast, like because because we knew that we could get so deep in two days that we wouldn't be able to get back down, and if the weather got bad, we'd figure it out. And uh, I love that <laughs> perspective. <clears throat> Yeah. Um, I have this, my own sort of philosophy, which is if you can get halfway through something, you can get all the way through something. Yes. It doesn't matter if it's a little interval workout or some huge ride. And it's so interesting to hear you say that because I do that all the time. Like there's this massive thing that I want to do and I can't wrap my head around the whole thing, but I know I can get through two thirds of it. So I'm just going to figure out the last third when I get there. I mean, I do that with races. If it's a three-lap race, yeah. I've learned that the best way that I can race is I do everything I can to convince myself that it's a two-lap race. Okay. And then once you get to that third lap, you rise to the occasion. 
So nice. that's exactly, that's exactly, that is so cool. I, I think it's, I th- but I, so cool. I think it's a two thirds thing, not a halfway thing. Mm. Cause I think like the, you know, the halfway, the, like the darkest time is between 50 and 75%. Mm. And then it, it's kind of like quote downhill unquote mm. mm-hmm. from 75 to finish. Right. Not always, but mm. you know, it, it's a, um, but I think, yeah, you have to. So you to... wanted two days. Yeah, so we wanted, exactly. <laughs> two days is fine. We'll figure out the third day. The, the third <laughs> day, or maybe or maybe That's we awesome. want, maybe we, we lose a day on the front. Maybe it's a three-day good forecast, but we lose a day waiting for the face to clear, and then we go, and then, um, and that really what happened. We had 48 hours of good weather, and then it got bad, and then, you know, we actually had to use the radio to call a friend who was in base camp to say, hey, we're descending the West Ridge. We're at this fork, and he had done that descent before, and and you know, like I said, we're you know, skiers right or skiers left, and he goes, and he just said skiers right, and we're like, okay, good, hmm. and we knew we could spend another, we could survive another. We had like an inch of fuel in the bottom of the fuel bottle, so we you know we could stay hydrated. We were out of food, but we knew we'd get through another. You were out of food. food. Yeah, but that happens. I mean, you need to. This is such a different dimension. This is what I this is what I meant at the beginning of the podcast in terms of adventure. Um, we're drawing a lot of parallels between you know your FKTs and and my white rim, and it's so funny. They're completely different sports, different efforts, all that sort of thing. <clears throat> but just to hear you say we were out of food, and it's fine, and you have at least a day left. Like that is a completely different dimension than what I'm used to. It's amazing, but it's amazing. But on a micro scale, it's like if we just take okay, take the the, the time part out of it. It's the same thing. Like you launch with two twenty-six ounce bottles, right? Is that yeah, it? Yeah. You know you're going to run out. Yeah. Right. You're, on purpose. You 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 purposefully know you're going to you know yeah. you've, you've made that decision, um, and and whether you, you know, and and for us, it's always like okay, as long as you have a gel left, you need to have a mouthful of water left. Mm-hmm. Or you won't eat the gel. Yeah. So there's like, there are some forward thinking strategies right. of like, and whether that's on the bike or in the mountains, doesn't matter. It's mm. just like, I got to, I will save enough water in order to be able to get the calories in that I have left. Right. Um, it's and, so funny because all of, all of the bike riding world that has paid attention to this FKT thing is freaking out about the bottle thing. But I knew if I'm hydrated to hour five, those last 45 minutes, I'm not going to keel over from dehydration. Yeah. And Similarly, like expanding that to a much broader scope, y'all knew if you could make make it two or three days in terms of food, you could get through that last day without food. Fine. And it sounds crazy to people. But when you're maximizing for speed, these are the decisions you make. Yes. And like when there was a picture posted, you know, and I I was like, okay, there's and I I can't remember exactly, but it looks like, okay, there's a bottle in the bike. There's a bottle in the jersey. And you're wearing a skin suit, essentially. (laughs) I'm just like, okay, (laughs) that's all in right there. That is that is like every single thing is dialed. And and I understand having ridden some of that terrain, uh, like it, the, you know, the I appreciated every millimeter of travel. Yeah, like that's part of the research. Because I'm guessing you went on a cross bike the first. I went on a hardtail. Okay, and it beat me to shreds the first time. Yeah, when I did a trial run, it destroyed me. Well, that's not entirely true. I say what I mean is I got to hour four and hour four through hour five is really, really rough. 
And starting around hour three and a half is when you start getting pretty tired. Oh, yeah. Hour four, you're really tired. And so when you're really tired, hour four through hour five, and you're also getting your teeth rattled out of your skull, you go a lot slower. See, I think Andy did it on a Cannondale cross bike. No, he did it on a scalpel. Okay. Which is a full suspension XC race bike. So it's pretty similar to what I used. Okay. But I, I had this hubris, and I was like... I am primary, you know, he's not even primarily a bike athlete. Well, I guess during that time, it could be argued that he was. Sure. But yeah. in terms of his legacy, he's not primarily been a bike athlete. And yeah. so I thought, all right, this guy needed a full suspension. I'm a racer. I won the national championship at long mountain bike rides. Yeah. I can do this on a hardtail. I can maximize. I got there. No way. No way. I was going way slower. And so that's when I knew not only did I need to go to full suspension. Okay. But I was going to go to 120. Front suspension, 115 rear suspension. No kidding. Five years ago, that would be considered a long, longer long. travel trail bike. Yeah. But with the way technology is moving, I mean, that that's an XC race bike now. Um, so, yeah, I had a lot of travel. Wow. Okay, okay so my – yeah, I, I don't have a full suspension mountain bike anymore, but I had a Scott Spark. Yep. Whatever. 100 mm-hmm. mils. Yep. Travel up front, and I'm just like, I will never. I'm just like, ah, I will never have more than 100 millimeters. <laughs> and now I, you know, I, I still have a mountain bike, but I think the tires are flat since there's some <laughs> shit. I, but, but, but I do know if like from that from the Schaefer loop, that jug handle um, loop, the FKT. Um, my friend Tim Matthews has it. Um, he works over at Poison Spider Bike Shop. We actually just did a podcast with him about straight edge culture. Um, but he had done it on a on his cross bike, thinking it would be faster, and then he realized like, man, the descent down Long Canyon. Because you could rip that thing on a mountain bike, and there are other sections getting to Schaefer from the end of Potash. He said, just so much smoother. So when he went back, I mean, and you look at the FKT on that, and he's like two hours and 25 minutes or something, and, and then I don't think anybody else is under three. I mean, mm. he, I mean he's a phenomenal rider. But also he just realized, like, yeah, suspension for that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and I, then when you really get into the nitty-gritty of the science, you start looking at watts and all that sort of thing, and it's so much harder to – I had a – I ride with a power meter almost all the time now. Okay. I don't necessarily always pay attention to it, but if I need it, I always go back and look. Yeah. And that was a big component of this FKT attempt. And we knew we knew how many watts I could hold for six hours. Okay. On a road, on a smooth road. Okay. And my coach the other day sent me photos of his notebook where he's trying to figure out how much is the roughness going to play into fatigue? How much is it going to play into interrupting your pedal stroke so the power, average power drops? Yep. How Ooh. much? Ooh, nice. I mean, there are so many components trying to trying to come to a number that I could hold because I paced by power and heart rate, but I paced by okay. power. And he finally said, he said, I think you can hold 240 watts for the attempt. And I was like, 240? That's like 35, 40 watts lower than what I can do on the road. Like, surely that's way too conservative. And so I went out, and during the first three hours of this attempt, I was audibly to myself yelling, slow down, relax, slow down, relax. Because I was, I was averaging 270 for the majority of the first few hours, which was above what I was supposed to be doing. And your heart rate was 20 beats per minute higher than no, the No, it was about right. It okay. was about right. It was maybe two or three beats high. Okay. Um, it was about right. But I was having to yell at myself. So he predicted 240. So if you think, and, and, and part of the reason there is like, okay, if 
the science that was done in the Soviet Union about those vibrating plates. Uh huh. Yeah, the Kladni plates. Is, is that is that what well, you're talking know, like about? The, the thing you stand on and oh, you know, gotcha. do some squats or whatever, and uh-huh. it vibrates, and there's yeah. all this sort of micro pulses and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. If that can actually develop strength and some localized muscular endurance. Yeah. Yeah, vibration on a bike will fuck you up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> like, it's so, very true. Like, so if it's creating absolutely... adaptation, then it's creating stress. Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, I mean, it's that. It makes you more tired, but also, like, you're just having to stutter your pedal stroke. And anyway, so I got three and a half hours in, and I was averaging over 260, and I was like, dude, you are going to annihilate this thing. Like, you are on one. I was high on my horse, just way, way ahead of schedule. Thought I was awesome. That's when the hubris needs to be reined in a little yep, bit. Yep. And still I was yelling at myself, yeah. like, slow down, slow down, slow down. Then we got to the rough part. And very, very quickly the average power dropped. Um, and at the end of the thing, the average was 245. He was five, He was within five watts of predicting. Wow. Yeah, which is way cool. And the reason I've worked with him for over 10 years. But point being, um, there are so many um, components to... to maximizing and so the bottles are part of that the skin suit the bike the pacing by power and you have to pay attention to all of those and then you at all times at all times and then you throw adrenaline in and so swinging back to denali but if you think about it, but what you are saying there yeah. is that like regard so if it's high performance you are after yeah then everything matters yeah and so when we start you know on that route I mean, at the time, we're thinking, okay, so we have our sleep, you know, the, the lightweight sleeping bag. I think Scott had something that was rated to 50 degrees Fahrenheit, mm. and we're mm. in the fucking Alaska range. I mean, it's like... <laughs> Why um, even bring it? <laughs> um, partially because there's a psychological piece to no. having it, to not sleeping in your clothes. Uh-huh. Like, if you just pull, like, a nylon bag over yourself with no insulation in it to shield yourself from the wind, and that may, in some situations, be enough. Interesting. But there is no... You know, there's no psychological, like, comfort, right? There's, And it's just like, okay, if you, on these long efforts, you know, you're going 48 hours nonstop, you have to have food that you can chew. Because there is a psychological mm. satiety mechanism that goes with chewing. You can't just have liquids and gels. Um, a, your stomach will, you know. Reject. Uh, yes. <laughs> or the, revolt, you know. Yeah. Revolt first, reject after. Um, <laughs> at, at some point, there's that. Um but also there's like you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I make inadequate calories feel adequate psychologically? Like mm. I need to reinforce my mental state. Um, and so what I can, you know, as long as I have some food to chew. I mean, so everything goes into it. And then with the sleeping bags, I mean, the lightest um, bivy sack on the market at the time was made by Montbell. It weighed seven ounces. There was nothing even, you know, there was something, you know, maybe five ounces heavier or whatever. But that's five gels. That's 500 calories. That's like, okay, where I save weight, you know, if we give ourselves and we would always say, okay, the pack can weigh no more than 35 pounds because that is pretty much where performance falls off. If you, if you, you know, and, and it was, it was a, that was probably a little heavy for me and a little light for Scott because it's a percentage of body weight thing. Mm. Um, but I said, okay, so if, if 35 pounds is the limit, what are the important things that go, you know? If if I save weight on the on the clothing and the sleeping part, then that allows me to have enough calories to actually do the thing to go continuously for that long, or it has, allows me to have enough fuel to melt snow to have enough water to keep going, so that we can actually adhere to our 
stated hydration objectives, mm. you know, on an hourly basis. Um, so, you know, let, let's just say that, you know, the, the parallels are that at high, for, for, for high performance, um, everything matters. And you start, you know, taking some risks. And that's, that's how that stuff gets done. It, it, I mean, yeah. there, there has to be an element of risk. And even if it's, if it's as simple as the risk of failing only. And um, so we started up the, this, this route. It's fairly technical climbing. Um, and we're talking it, uh, we're, No, we're actually, we're, so we're back on Mount Hunter. Um, <clears throat> and, and at the end, and so sort of 39 hours into the second day, we got, to, you know, we were, whatever, still four hours away from base camp. And looking at walking back up the glacier, it would have been fucking miserable. Because we had skied to the bottom of the route from base camp and left our skis there, figuring, you know, we'll figure out a way, you know, we'll we'll go up and the, we'll have to come back up and get them at some point. Um, hopefully it doesn't snow and bury them and we lose them and that. But so we're 39 hours, we're, you know, done the climb. We're down the West Ridge and... Uh, and we're getting close to the the the, the Kehiltna Glacier, and I'm looking, and I'm like, and it's starting to get a little bit. It's uh, it's May, so there's dusk. You know, it's 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 not it's full on 24 hours of light yet. Um, headlamps, uh, even climbing through the night, headlamps were useful, so it's still a bit early in the season. Um, but I was looking at the glacier, and I'm like, there's fucking headlamps. There's people headed our way, mm-hmm. and. So Michael Kennedy and Greg Child, uh, Joe Josephson, Ken Wiley, they'd gone to the bottom of the route that we'd started up, got our skis, and skied down to us Whoa. on the descent so that we could, um, A, there'd be a trail to get back, and B, we wouldn't have to post hole on foot all the way back. And they showed up with, you know, thermoses of hot cocoa and oh, wow. food and shit, and I was just like, oh, my God, this is... <laughs> okay, this is... How to make food taste very good oh my better God. than but, it has ever tasted yes <laughs> <laughs> and and uh and, but but more important was that was the camaraderie in that sense of of being part of a group those guys would expend that effort to part you know to help to help us and um you know i'm like and because i'm an emotional guy you know i get like and especially deep into an endurance effort, it, t- it takes at that point it would have taken nothing to make me cry, and I was just like, "Oh my god, you're gonna!" Isn't that interesting? Isn't that an interesting component? In terms of self-talk, I mean, I have to do that all the time. Take the emotion out of it. Like recognize when emotion is creating your decisions. It's so hard to decouple those. Um, I'm sorry to be the interviewer here. Give me an example. Oh well, because. <laughs> During, okay, I'll make it simple. During an interval workout. Yeah. Six by 10 minute threshold efforts. Okay. Effort number four, five. You're in a very different headspace than on effort one. Oh. Maybe you're having a bad day. You're feeling bad about yourself. Okay. Maybe you're having a good day. Whatever. Um, there is emotion involved. If you're having a bad day... Um, there's always the the dialogue in your head where you're trying to justify cutting the workout short. You're trying to justify why it should be four by 10 instead of six by 10. You know, I don't feel good. I must need a rest day or I'm not on good form. I need to take a slower build into coming back into good form, whatever it is. And I often find myself having to say, um, you have a recipe today. And just get it done. 
Just get it done. You can always rest more later. Just finish what you set out to do today. The rest days will come. You can always adjust later. Um, and that happens in races too. Okay. The, that happens in races for me all the time. I, I, the thing that I always say to myself these days is just do your job. I mean, there, you might get chopped in a turn. You might be up against, you might be going to the line with a guy who sprints way faster than you, but always just do your job. Forget about the history that you might have with that person on the day or in the past, whatever, just do your job. And your job is just give a hundred percent effort. And if that happens, then there aren't really any doubts. Um, or second guessing after the fact. Exactly. Whereas if you allowed yourself to second guess yourself during the effort, then you there will be nothing but second guessing afterwards. Yeah. Like I you, mean, if yeah, you, I get it. A hundred percent of the time, for, in my experience, if you give up, a hundred percent of the time it sucks after the fact. <laughs> Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Giving up of this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> now I would differentiate like making a rational choice to stop. Yes, because for sure, for sure of you know X Y Z circumstances. Absolutely. You know? um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there are it, absolutely times where where throwing in the towel makes sense, but. To me, there's a difference between giving up for emotional reasons and giving up for rational reasons. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. So, um, I mean, I, w- I would say largely that m- all, most of my best routes, yes, there's, a, there's a, a rational and very technical preparation for them, but the routes get done on emotion. Yeah. Fair. Fair. No, there right, has that, to be emotion. It almost mm-hmm. kind of goes back to your, your humility and hubris thing. Without emotion, you're not going to get much done. But for me, it's when emotion is getting is inhibiting, yes. is slowing you down. Emotion can be fuel, or it can be dead weight. Yes, and it just it can the, make your lungs smaller. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so I mean, it's just, it's just a matter of experience, I think, differentiating the two. But anyway, man, this is the this podcast is just the king of tangents, but they're all good tangents. <laughs> I, um, I like this. It's like one of those movies where there's this overarching storyline and we keep like diving under and then coming back up to the to the storyline and diving back under and coming up to the main storyline. <laughs> this Denali is just like an overarching thing. And by the end, we'll get there. I think we might we'll, get we'll there. Get, we'll get to the summit. <laughs> but <clears throat> along the way, we're going to explore a lot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so so at the end of that, we, were, we had gone, I mean, it was 72 hours on the mountain and 43 hours nonstop. And then, and you know, at that time we realized like, okay, we're, we're pretty smashed. And it took us, we, we committed a week to recover before we went and tried something else. Only that, a week. Yeah. Cause we were still in the mountains. We didn't How long out. does it take for you to catch up on sleep? And what is uh, your relationship it, to sleep? To sleep? <laughs> Interesting. Um, <clears throat> so then, I mean, in base camp, nothing else to do mm. can sleep a lot yeah fair. you know it's just like okay our job for the next week is to eat and sleep and try to recover mentally enough to take a shot at climbing mount four acre which is the second second highest peak in the range and uh <clears throat> um and and i and that was hubris also thinking that you know we could have cut that trip short by a week you know we could have come down off mount hunter like had two days of you know, a day of celebration and recovery and base camp and then packed the next day and flown out and gone. But we still had this idea that, 
you know, we were there for six weeks and we've got time left and conditions are probably pretty good over there and we should go, but we, no fire. Hmm. Yeah. Like we got over there and we're just like, okay, we're not. Tank is still empty. T- tank is still empty. And, and to confront some challenges like that, you, you need a m- overflowing tank almost. And, um, and, and in the prior to that, I mean, I'd done, um, one of the big new routes I'd done on the Alps in 92, uh, it, I didn't go, I essentially did not go climbing for four months afterwards because it was so intense huh. and we'd been, and it was the fourth attempt on that thing. And we'd been trying it for basically a year. And, and so there was a lot of emotional, you know, release, if you will. And I just had no fire. I mean, and then it's like, okay, well, we did the super hard thing. What's the next, what the logical progression is to do something harder or to do something longer. And so therefore you actually, you need to accumulate that energy again. You need to just basically, okay, if you've got a, a, you can kind of scratch the itch a tiny bit, but if you want to do something good, you have to allow the energy to build. Because if you, if you don't come out with sort of the, does, you know, seeking, what happens right before a mushroom cloud happens (laughs) if you're not if if that's not what you're looking for then you're not going to do something great great and and that takes a lot of um, time and as far as like the relationship to sleep uh i didn't get a ton last night (laughs) (laughs) so here's a question but 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 i i understand the importance and when i need it i take it Okay. But that's also a byproduct of more or less having been in control of my schedule, you know, for a lot of my life. Okay. You know, having worked Fair. for myself and stuff like that. And Fair. yes, there's the, you got to grind, you got to hustle, all the whatever yeah. hashtags. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, because cause your next, you know, the paycheck you just got, you know, might be the last one. So yeah. you, you do yeah. need to keep working. But, but there's... Like, I can't do this stuff if I don't sleep. Because I've wondered if um, in these ultra-long efforts, these multi-day efforts where you don't sleep, do you think that harms your ability to maintain a quote-unquote normal circadian rhythm down the line? No. Okay. No, I don't I don't think so because um, as briefly touched on, you know, a real life will intervene at some point once you get back into... Um, where everyone around, once you get back into an environment where everyone around you is adhering to that sort of right, you know, eight right. to five slash daylight nighttime schedule, um, you'll get, you'll get, you know, just socially. Yeah. And, you know, you will get sort of drawn back into that. And, and I, and so I, I don't think that, you know, long periods of sleep deprivation um, in this context. Yeah. If you work swing shift, you're, fucked for your life right right you know? right right but things like this where you're gonna, gonna say like i'm gonna stay awake for 72 hours or yeah. whatever i i i could be wrong about this and there may be scientists who listen and <laughs> say, ah, you're wrong you're, you're gonna die 10 years younger i'm like well at least they taken it off the back end pay now um, <laughs> but it, and, and i think and and especially in a, a period like I know right now you've like spent a lot of time training for a particular objective and then you have these two 90 minute races where you 
probably got your teeth kicked in. Yeah, definitely the first day. Because intensity second one, is... I kind of rose back to the occasion, but boy, that first one, I was like, well, this is very different. <laughs> and it's like, and, and, and so those are the kind of things where you need, where, where sleep is super important. Yeah. And, uh, um, it, it, when you're building through that period and, 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 and probably, you know, there's a lot about talk about sleep hygiene. You can get an app for your phone that tells you after the fact that you didn't sleep well and, you know, but but there's no prescriptions like do better. other than do better. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like this is important. Do better. Yeah. <laughs> Which all of the data being gathered, and this is a, a um, tangent. We I won't go too. I won't go far down this one. Dude, this but is it's just, fine. Um, but all of the the the, the data gathering stuff mm. is unuseful without interpretation. Mm-hmm. Your coach, you've been working with a guy for 10 years. Mm-hmm. He knows you. So when he sees those numbers, like, okay, this. But for the most part, when people are gathering information, and if you, you, you can go down this, you know, data acquisition quantified self road pretty fucking far. Yep. <laughs> but, oh, now I got all these numbers. I mean, and, and, and the joke for me is like the, this, this, uh, heart rate variability thing that I was using for a while in 2014 and, and, uh, I get up every morning and I, you know, put a little chest strap on, I do my thing and, and it'd tell me if I was like good to go or I should, you know, seek medical you know, attention, <laughs> you know, each morning from my phone, I'd be like, yeah, man, you're super fucking tired. And like for the three month trial period, I had one day where it told me I was good to go. What? Ev- everything else. And I was on a movie job. I was, you know, in Detroit, I was in a very, very bad period generally in life, so not totally surprising. But um, and, and I don't remember the total the scale, but I was always in the orange or the red. Jeez. And the one day that it came back, and sometimes I would like test again to see if I could get a different, you know, shot for an answer, kind of thing. Like I need a better answer. Or I'm not going to get out of bed. <laughs> it was um, wrong. But yeah, no, uh, you know, it's you're worse off than you thought. <laughs> you know, you should have taken that first result. <laughs> the one day that it came up good, like your health is great, ready to rock, was a day that I was doing a 50 mile mountain bike race. That's and, convenient. Uh, and I was just like, I'm not testing it. I know this is probably wrong, but I'm not testing it again. <laughs> this is green and I'm going to fucking hammer. Um, <laughs> so this, but, but all those, all those numbers have to be interpreted by someone with experience analyzing those numbers, but also with the individual athlete. And, and and so I think you know okay I got an app that tells me you didn't sleep well I'm like I fucking know I didn't sleep well because <laughs> <laughs> up I half the night I need to do better up <laughs> half the night thinking about like oh, it's just it's just tracking me right now <laughs> should be anyway um, so yeah the sleep thing is important and I and I and I uh, we should all do better yeah tough in this time especially you know screen time let's just say yeah is a a big deal absolutely Um, absolutely yeah so this this thing on mount hunter it basically pointed us in the direction like okay we can't you know we what's a that route was like seven thousand vertical feet um and you you snag the fkt then um maybe sort of i mean it it was yeah, I mean, if 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 the, the fastest the route the face you know not that particular route because the thing that we had done was new, but if that feature of Mount Hunter North Buttress Mount Hunter, um, 
you know, the fastest it had been climbed in six days and we cut that in half, I'd guess you could call it, right. you know, and I don't think people are going up there and like busting out, you know, well, actually that's not true because now, um, so much is every, every time it's the four minute mile. It's like, how long did it take for the next guy to run the four minute mile after Bannister did? You know, it's Landy. It's like a few days, th- three days, three weeks, couple weeks, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So as soon as it's possible, then it's not like everyone can do it, but it drags the level up. And that's the other beautiful thing about, you know, the white room FKT. It's just like, okay, three days is no longer the expectation you know, or, <laughs> or 15 hours or whatever. Yeah, like this yeah, is, this yeah. is what is possible for a human being. Yeah. You got a bike, you got two legs, you got two arms, you got lungs. Okay, double it. Yeah. Fine. Go out. Check it out. Yeah. And and uh and see how much distance both mentally and physically you can cover on your bike in that twelve hour period. And and so that's um so the North Butchers of Hunter now is, you know, guys are climbing it in a single push and getting, you know, to the to the top of the buttress, not going the next twenty two hundred feet to the summit or whatever it is. Um but just wrapping the route because all the anchors are fixed because they had so much traffic now. Um, so, so, so it did open some things. So, uh, you know, I'm sh- sure deprivation, the route that Scott and I climbed on Hunter has, I know it's been repeated um, and probably faster, you know, whatever it's, it's, um, but at the time, you know, we're kind of out there on the edge trying to figure shit out. And, yeah. and, uh, and then, and we had all of us like, Anybody who was kind of top tier, whatever climber, and had been to the Alaska Range, they had been looking at the Slovak Direct on the south face of Denali. It had been first climbed in 1986. It took 11 days um, for three guys, and they they had a thousand feet of fixed rope. The the route is like 9,000 vertical feet, and so they had fixed that. You know, they'd climb and fix Just the rope. Just for and, for context, what yeah. is the summit of Denali for folks? Uh, 20,300 feet is the, is the physical elevation, but it's so far north. Um, so there's a higher concentration of oxygen at the equator, less at the poles. Denali is so far north that the, the altitude equivalent is around 23,000, okay. is what is hypothesized in yep. terms of, you know, parcel pressure, partial pressure in the, um, uh, in, in, in the air and, and, and temperatures because it's, you know, you're. Getting, it's cold. You can be cold, you know. Yeah. You know, you can be on top, very lightly dressed, or you could need a down suit. It just yeah. depends on yeah. the time. And so, so this first ascent in '86 took 11 days, and there was these th- three guys, and and uh, and they had three guys climb an easier route and meet them on top. So they had a support team, so they knew that they were going towards sanctuary. Um, so you have that, you know, that advantage, and I mean, a bunch of us had talked about it. Like that's the thing that's the route that needs to see a modern ascent that and this is you know and in 98 i'd gone up with um steve house to try it he had i had just climbed a route on mount huntington and i think that was the year he climbed king peak and uh um so we were both on you know the tail end of you know pre previous trips and we're just like we should go take a look at <laughs> slovak and and we were pretty late in the season. It was it, it was way too. It wasn't going to happen that year. It was way too warm. The objective was too too big at that time for two people. Is what we real one of the things we realized. And and so we climbed the the up, you know the normal route on Denali. We climbed Upper West Rib, and you know we were well enough acclimatized. But you know had Paul from Talkeetan Air Taxi, you know give us a flyby on the face and you know do laps up the south face of Denali, looking at it and taking pictures and just and we realized like you know this is. 
there is more technical climbing here than than we maybe thought and that's going to be and for two guys that's a that's an enormous amount of pressure and uh, and so we decided all right you you know uh, and experiments have been being done with teams of three and it's the right way you know it's the right way for that objective um because you do, the gear requirements don't necessarily go up like there's very little weight increase but a huge thing and this is something that came up in the podcast with uh, Alex Hutchinson um, who wrote Endure and we were talking about cognitive drafting mm. and the, the idea that you know there's only there's there's this hierarchy of risk that happens with a team of three on these ascents is like the guy who's leading he's taking the most risk and he's got to be fully present yep the guy who's holding the rope for him has to be present he's got some time where he doesn't need you know you got to be attentive to the sounds when you can't see the guy anymore because he's too far away. And, you know, there's a bunch of stuff. So that guy's got, you know, let's just say he's at like 75% stress while the guy who's leading is at 100. Yep. And then <clears throat> guy number three? Chilling. Totally. <laughs> rest. Just rest. Sleep. Time. Like your job is to eat, drink, and rest mm. and like, sh- you know, shut your brain off and try not to care. And so when we, um, and just the way that works, one functional piece is once we started up the Slovak, um, I, uh, Steve took the first, and we were climbing, we basically tried to climb and you know, start the ascent in six-hour blocks. So Steve's leading for the first six hours. And Scott takes over for six hours. I didn't... Those I, are long poles. They're, but they're... But the thing is, if you, if you keep, if you switch, if you go from leading to belaying to back to leading, it's... Um, I'll relate it back to the, uh, you know, your episode number one with Reggie, and he's talking about that, that race where he's like, okay, I'm on, and it's a relay, so, or whatever. Like I take my lap, and he takes his lap, yeah. and you know, good, that 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 on off like that is psychologically really damaging mm. as well. Yep. So if you get in front for six hours, then you know you're going to rest for twelve. Gotcha. Essentially, gotcha, right? Gotcha. So, so there is, and if you're in back, like like I didn't take over on the Slovak until hour thirteen. Mm. That, you know, in front. By that time, I was dying to fucking yeah, be you're in, chopping like, up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Let me at it. Let me at it. <laughs> so, not only are you conserving energy, but you're basically accumulating power and desire. Interesting. And that, like you said, that it, gas tank is overflowing. Yes. Yeah. And so, by the time that I launched, I'm just like, ah, I have it. <laughs> um, and then that has to that has to go away. But so, so we had come up with this thesis that okay, we've gone 48 hours nonstop or 43. It was kind of by accident, but, you know, we did it. And um, and and Steve on his own, I think I think their King Peak Ascent was 36 hours or something like that nonstop. And, uh, and so everybody's on the same page. We can do this, and we can probably climb this. It's only 9,000 vertical feet. How bad could it, you know, <laughs> how bad? It be? And so we planned for 48 hours, even though the first ascent had taken 11 days. <laughs> <laughs> the first and only aye, aye, aye. had taken eleven Jeez. days, and and uh, and so everything was there. You know, prior acclimatization. You know, Steve had gone on another trip beforehand and got to altitude. Scott couldn't, and he's from Saint. He lives in Saint Paul, Minnesota. Mm. So we knew he was going. We were going to have to do some acclimatization once he got there. But so Steve had been on a separate trip. I'd already been to the summit of McKinley once that season, um, and. And then we went, uh, we went back again with Scott on the normal route, 
because the altitude adaptation is a thing. Not only do you need to cause the physiological changes, but you need to have that experience. Like you need to know that you've been there or because that makes it easier to go again. So, um, so we'd done all this acclimatization and then we're just sitting in base camp waiting for the weather window. And, uh, I have to step back one piece because or one beat because the first ascent, 11 days, second ascent. And that was in 86. Second ascent was done in May of 2000 by Kevin Mahoney and Ben Gilmore. Um, and it took seven days. Mm. And those two young guys, hitters, like totally capable. We were there in June. So we had been hoping to do the second ascent and, you know, you know, and, and, you know, make a style statement about, you know, the state of modern climbing. Like, okay, 11 days, 48 hours. That's, that's where we are right now. Yeah. Um, quantum leap, quantum leap, but also 14 years later. So it kind of makes sense, you know, but those guys having done it in, and it took them seven days and those guys, you know, solid climbers with a really, you know, had, you know, good pedigree and great resumes. And did it give you a pause? When it took him seven days? No, actually, we were just because hmm. we were still convinced because of um, because of our own prior experience and what we'd been working to. Like we'd been, you know, if we t- say that okay, yeah, the, the this nonstop ascent of you know South Face of Denali, um, yeah, it took sixty hours, but it really took you know fifteen years and sixty hours. You know, it goes back to that thing. Yeah. Those guys didn't have that non-stop ah. experience that single push experience in their in their resume so they're they're approaching it from a different psychological vantage point um and so we've like gone to these other places and we know what we can do they had gone to these other places done other stuff and they knew what they could do so they took that was with um was in in the context of what they were you know technically physically and psychologically capable of so and you know, we were kind of bummed out. Oh, we're not going to get the second ascent. And then we're just like, doesn't matter. We're not here for that. We're here to smash, to, to, to express <laughs> yeah. this thing that we've been trying to do for so long. And, um, and so after, after all the acclimatization, we were waiting in base camp for a good weather forecast and, and, uh, we got it. Um, and we skied to the bottom of the South face and we left enough I mean, the, the, and, and here's the, the other thing with the FKT. A, you're not just, like, showing up and doing it. You know, some unknown thing you've never seen before. You haven't practiced, you haven't rehearsed, you don't know. Let's just say the thing about White Room is you come back to the starting point. But if the... I mean, I would... I, I am of the opinion that, the, like, you're climbed to the summit and you are less than halfway at that point. Hmm. Because now you're in a fully physically and psychologically compromised state, and you have to get down. Yeah. So. And you're f- at the literal furthest point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. And 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 in a condition that you you couldn't have prepared for. So you know a lot of bad shit happens on the descent for climbers. It's a it's a thing. So you need to. That is such an interesting dynamic about climbing because the summit is so glorified. Yeah it's it's the goal and so when you're close to the summit the temptation i'm sure is so great to just push one percent beyond what you should and then you do that and like you said you're halfway 
That's the, not the end. Oh, no. That's and the glory it, point. That's not the end. Exactly. And it's only You got to get back down alive. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it's only the glory point after you get back down. Right, 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 right. <laughs> like, but I guess I kind of my point is I can imagine getting wrapped up in the moment and thinking that that moment of glory is the summit. Yeah. But it's not. It's, you know, home safe is the end of the trip. Yeah. Right? And 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 everything that that entails. So yeah, you've, you you need to have, keep something in the back pocket, which was, I mean, if we get to the bike racing thing at some point, it's like my first couple of seasons of bike racing, I couldn't, I was unwilling to empty the tank. Hmm. Interesting. Because I have this habit of years, from years and years and years of always keeping something in the back pocket because you never know mm. what might happen. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what's going to happen in a bike race? The fucking broom wagon's gonna happen, you know, like or or what, you know, whatever. Like, and, and it took me a long time to unlearn that habit, but it's that habit that ultimately kept me alive in the in, in that career. Um, so we had, uh, you know, fully acclimatized, and we got this basically five day, which in the Alaska, you know, good weather forecast, which in the in the Alaska range is kind of unheard of. Maybe once a year, maybe once every couple of years. Wow. Um, and so we got that forecast and skied up to the south face and we and had a, had a tent there and had enough food and fuel that uh, left there that if the weather was bad or whatever, we could wait there for a good forecast. Um, or if we couldn't get up the face, we could retreat back down to that point. Um, and then we launched and we had, uh, between the three of us, we had 53 pounds total weight. Wow. Uh, and, and when we started, 18 of that was water. Wow. So Nothing. Nothing. I mean, each of us, like I think we had one spare set of goggles for the three of us. Each guy had a spare set of mittens and a puffy coat. And wow. we had two stoves, 22 ounces of fuel for each stove, um, and then the food piece, which... What was we the... made some We made some, you know, di- kind of different decisions based on, you know... What were those decisions? So, uh, I mean, we thought we were going to get it done in 48 hours. So we each started with, you know, we, we had our carbohydrate component was basically each guy had 48 gels. Um, we had some, and, and this was a period of time I was, uh, working with, um, I mean, this is sort of late into that relationship. I started working with goo, I think in 1993, and, um, and so, yeah, so it would have been 98 when we were working on what became the Roctane formula and I'd get like zip, ba- Ziploc bags of gel, you know, Bill Vaughn, who's the, who was the scientist there. Um, uh, you know, you go, okay, we put some extra choline in this one kind of tastes like ass, but let me know what you think about cognitive, you know, cause we're trying to like, like develop a formula to, to enhance or sustain cognitive function during these super long efforts. And so. Wow, that's so interesting, and I appreciate that because today I rely on goo and Roctane to get me through the Leadville 100 yeah, or the White Rim or whatever, and it's so interesting to hear the history of that. <laughs> of that formula was yeah. like, okay, we're trying more caffeine, we're trying more <laughs> amino acids, we're trying, you know, choline, we're trying, because, and, 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 and Dr. Vaughn at that time, I mean, he was, he was instrumental in developing our feeding strategies for a lot of these these big long ascents because you know we're you know like you look at nutrition 
from the outside these days, and most people are trying to figure out how to like eat less so that they can lose the weight that they somehow accidentally gained. Uh, it's funny. Um, and, and, but then, you know, the flip side of that is like, okay, I need to figure out, okay, if I've got like a three hour window, we're going to sit down partway up this ascent because we, we're out of, we're out of water. So we need to melt snow. And so we're going to sit down and it's going to take, and basically we're going to, you know, the, 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 the deal was we, we sit down, we're going to be here until everyone has drunk three liters and everyone has three liters to start the next 12 hour block. Mm. Um, and so that takes some time. You want to have two stoves because it goes faster. Um, but then, but I also at that time in that period of time, I want to eat as many fucking calories as I can, because I can't. Like I'm on a sort of maintenance diet while we're moving, but I get there, and so, you know, we developed a whole thesis of appetite stimulation, interesting, and adding, you know, food if I eat and and. And an ordered eating pattern, right? Because if, you know, one of the reasons people get fat on a daily basis is because they eat too many carbohydrates and carbohydrates make them hungry. Mm. Well, when I got a three hour block, a three hour feeding window, what do I want to do up front? I want to have a bunch of salt to stimulate my appetite and I want to eat some carbs that cycle really quickly, drop my blood sugar and mm. make me even hungrier. Yep. If I eat the fat up front, trigger satiety enzymes in my stomach i'm not going to eat as many calories as i could in that particular feeding window so you know the, the protein and fat came on the tail end and it was you know it's chicken bouillon up front the like which is nice it's salty i need to hydrate it's something salty stimulates the appetite and he, and, and dr vaughn at one point he's like what do you think about a little red wine <laughs> like i think we gotta nix that idea man but but i i, I hear where you come from <laughs> that's hilarious <laughs> and uh and the feta cheese, which is, you know, like a salty cheese. I'm just like, again, it's like, okay, if I put the fat in, it's going to, it's going to, you know, kick my hunger down too, too much. So we're, so we're trying to figure out ways to like, A, maximize the number of calories we can carry for a given weight and B, how to get that in, in these very specific like feeding windows. And, um, so yes, we each had 48 gels. Um, and then I had a Ziploc bag full of halva, which is a, um, sesame seed and sugar confection as far as I, uh, and, and as far as like calories, like pretty good bang for the buck, like in, and, and sesame has a calming influence on the stomach also. Um, so if you've gotten pretty acidic from eating nothing but carbs and, and, and that kind of thing for the previous 12 hours, then you can like settle your stomach right down, you know, with that, um, I had some reindeer sausage sticks also for the protein and fat piece. And, um, I was using a, uh, a a shake type, like a powdered drink mix, you know, not while moving, but while we're stopped. And it would be my dessert is kind of a vanilla flavored thing that was a combination of, um, of protein and, uh, and adaptogens. So some herbal supplements that, um, one of which is a ectistin, which is a precursor to test. I think it's one molecule away from testosterone, but hmm. it's a, you know, it, thesis there being a bit, you know, okay, we can, probably slow some catabolic response to this you know putting out more than we could actually take in um and that there there was sort of the eating strategy but it we and i know that if we had gone with just gels there's just there, a there's not enough calories b they're heavy mm-hmm. um so we need to figure out some other so if if if, if you know 100 calories of carbs weighs an ounce in the case of, you know, one package of goo, 
um, then uh, I can, you know, in an ounce of halva, I can basically double the calories. Now I'm like, okay, now we're, you know, starting to find the right zone. And I don't know totally, you know, if it was each guy had like five pounds, you know, 48 ounces of goo. That's, uh, that's not insignificant. Right. Um, so two and a half pounds, basically. Yeah. Uh, right there, just in gel. And then, you know, then the rest of it. So we were probably like six or seven pounds worth of calories for each guy. And, uh, and the climbing was hard. I mean, we... We, you know, we had the topo from the Slovaks, um, so basically a map of the entire face and how hard it was at each different point, and you know, and their their written description also of like this was super hard. And we're like, <laughs> you guys didn't know how to ice climb. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because '86, like <clears throat> ice climbing ability and technology and vision was completely different than mm. it was 14 years mm-hmm. later. So, um, and then they're also relating, you know, using their clothing systems to insulate them from the environment while we're using our clothing systems to integrate with the environment and, and understanding that the difference of dressing for movement and dressing for stasis, you know, not moving. So it was, it, but it, again, it had taken, you know, 10 or 12 years to get to that point to, to know what we could get away with. And, uh, so 48 hours up the face, we, well, we started making bad decisions around hour 36. Okay. What do you mean? <laughs> um, root finding situation where we were overly influenced by this objective hazard, you know, big ice cliff that we didn't want to get anywhere near. And so we're trying to force a way through this rock band that didn't go. I mean, we tried two different ways through this rock band and finally we we're just like, fuck it. We'll go over next to big Bertha, which is the name of this huge ice cliff on the South face. Um, and see what's in between the edge of this rock buttress and that ice cliff. And sure enough, there was an easy way to sneak through hmm. and it wasn't that dangerous, but we had, but we had allowed our like big Bertha. It's this mythical thing when that Sarah cuts loose and, scours the lower part of that face i mean it is a huge event and so you carry a certain amount of like emotional weight yeah associated with a geographic feature and uh so we didn't want to get close to it and then uh and nobody was sharp enough to go okay we're making a fear-based decision that is not realistic or necessary because we're 36 hours deep at that point. And, um, and then, uh, so we got through that section and then right about 48 hours. Uh, so when the stoves ran out of fuel and where were you 48 hours in? Not near the top. Interesting. <laughs> it turns out, um, we were pretty high and we were, um, and as it turned, and when, when we stopped for that at that brew stop where the, the stoves ran out of fuel, you know, we had an idea from, you know, we're carrying a picture, you know, a, a photographic print of the South Face and like, okay, it looks like we're here. And so we could have three or four more hard pitches before we have to do the final sort of 2,000 feet on the, you know, of easier terrain. And so we think we're there, but we don't know. So you, you know, don't count on anything because you can make any feature that you see in a photo or on a map look like what you want. Especially 48 hours in. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
Uh, so stoves, stoves ran out of fuel there, and, and um, I think we had six, lit- six liters of water at that point um, left. And we had put a cache on the normal route at 11,000 feet. And so we knew we had to get down to that because we were trying not to have any outside assistance. Um, and uh, so stoves ran out of fuel. I, and when we start making bad decisions, it's like, okay, Scott led a pitch. And then it took him 20, 20 minutes to build a blank at one point. He was so fucking tired. Wow. And and something that would normally take like three to five minutes. Like, okay, there's, I got one eye screw. I got, you know, one cam in the rock, equalized, boom, ready to go. And, you know, and just so tired and not being able to visualize what the anchor needs to look like. And if you can't visualize it, you can't make it. You start fucking around and, and wasting time. So he was at that point. And then at that, that ledge where we stopped at 48 hours, um, you know, Steve ate and drank a bunch and then puked. And, and mm. I was just like, ah, man. Well, no one's willing to eat that now that it's out. <laughs> but we need it. Someone's going to need it. I mean, it didn't happen, obviously, because <laughs> that would be like chundering, I think, would be the Yikes. technical term. But but just like a total shame. Like, holy fuck. Yeah, what like, a waste. What a waste. Fluid and calories gone. Yeah. And, the, and, and and stuff that would be, you know, having that in the tank in the next few hours is going to mm-hmm. be helpful. When um, we started moving again, uh, it was my lead, and I think I'd, I only had to climb one pitch, and then it was just like, okay, the technical climbing is done. And we were um, pretty stretched out at that that point and uh so you were out of out of ways to drink yeah were you out of food yet no few bits and pieces you know but but we're also now no one's got an appetite Mm. either interesting because you're okay now we're getting pretty deep and we so we finished the hard technical climbing we ended up leaving some gear and i think you've mentioned this in the past that i'm not you know proud of it but just like okay now we're trying to survive like i i know how far i need to be pushed in order to compromise my ethics which is you know essentially leave no trace um we already left a trace because steve already dropped an ice tool so we had already littered you know <laughs> but we got to this point and we're like all right we're leaving you know we'll coil everything up nicely and we like put an anchor because we didn't need any more of the technical hardware so we built like a five or six or seven piece equalized anchor and left one of the ropes um one of the two two ropes that we had left one of the stoves in the pan because there was no you know no need for that. Was, you didn't have anything to heat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and jettison you know left as much weight as we could because we're now we're not. Yeah, we can see the summit. It's still two thousand feet above us, but we don't know what's going to happen because we now we're in unknown territory. No one's gone more than forty three hours nonstop, and we're basically you know without sleep. And then you could catnap <clears throat> as the third guy every now and then. Sometimes you also fall asleep on your feet while mm-hmm. you're moving but how how scared were you at this point uh and why why did you decide to keep pushing on knowing that you were out of all of these essentials theoretically and you weren't halfway um so we so we were more than half well we weren't halfway yes if we consider the summit less than halfway right okay so um so so we're not quite halfway uh, but also there was one point when we were about 5,000 feet up to face and Scott and I were at a, Steve was leading and Scott and I were at the belay and Scott goes, Hey man, look down there. And I'm like, 
yeah, yeah, what? <laughs> he goes, the glacier. I go, Scott, it's a glacier. We're in Alaska, of course. And I'm thinking, the fuck is wrong with Scott right now? <laughs> and and he goes, it's so far down there. I'm like, yeah, we've, 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 we've climbed really high, really fast. And he goes, we couldn't get down if we tried. Huh. And I was like, okay, so that's the point he was aiming to make. <laughs> which is essentially... Um, and you could take that, you know, number of ways. Like you, you, we have passed the point of no return. Like now, whatever happens, the only way out is up. But so if you think about because all the, you were all, taking a different route down. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 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 the, the the different route down the normal route, it's walking. I mean, yes, people have tripped and slipped and fallen and died on it, but that wasn't going to happen to us. Um, but st- but we did not have enough, you know repel anchors to use the and the terrain was te- technically difficult enough that, that we could not get back down and you could be like oh my god that's so terrifying I'm like no it's the most liberating thing in the world when you don't have to have this psychological this this thing going in your head all the time the of dialogue like, is gone the, yeah the dialogue is gone the dialogue, now everything is aimed upwards you're you and and the, and the power that comes with that is absolutely amazing it's huh. it's um because you're i'm not I don't that that dialogue that's running in the in the head all the time is like okay uh, if we need to get down okay we could th- this many you know we have this many pieces of rock here we have got a couple ice screws we can like do veef threads you know we'll find some natural stuff you know there's always like and then or now we get up to this point okay we can traverse left and we can probably get through that terrain and get to the a known route of the Cassine Ridge which is off to our left um, and, and and we could either finish on that which is easier or we could go down that and there's a lot of fixed anchors you know there's and when retreat is still a possibility there's like part of your mind is occupied with thinking about how you're going to do it when retreat is no longer an option it's just like okay I'm, I'm i am free i'm cut loose it's only up and and an amazing sense of freedom because there is no longer a choice mm-hmm. And uh, um, so we joined the Cassine Ridge, I think about 53 hours into it. And um, and then it was, and we'd always kind of joked that, all right, the last 2,000 feet, that'll be Mark's block because, you know, he's, he's not that great a technical climber, but he can put his head down and just like fucking charge. So on, on, uh, on this moderate type of terrain and happily uh mark westman and his partner they they climbed the cassine and they were like a thousand feet above us we could see them there was no way we could catch them but they were breaking a nice trail in the snow no way. it was so and and you know we were you know since then you know 19 years later i'm still grateful that they they were there because it would have made it that much harder and yeah we could have like been ethically pure and like stepped outside their tracks but who's that stupid <laughs> you know like um and so by the time we crest we crested the uh up to the fall summit this thing called the Kilton horn or pig hill or whatever we'd been moving for 60 hours and uh um and that was where we made the decision you know the summit's like 200 feet higher but we'd already been i'd been twice already that year steve had been once that year scott had been once that year I'd been up there a bunch of times. We're like, you know, 
we're just going to turn left and go down the normal route right mm-hmm. now instead of doing this last little bit. Because we were, you know, honestly, like, uh, again, unknown ter- territory. And and uh, um, and we had done what we set out to do. And so we got down from, from there, which is, you know, 20,000 feet or whatever. We got down to the, the medical camp that the Park Service puts in at 14,000 feet on the normal route. We got down there in three hours. And... And it was super weird because we're going by people and, you know, we're dressed really light and nobody, you know, the packs look up empty, you know, like planet of these fuckers from, and there are people, you know, coming up and they got down suits on and they're just moving real slow and heavy. And that it sounds super- so familiar to the white rim. Yes. <laughs> In a shrink wrapped American flag Ooh. with empty bottles and empty gel packets stuffed in the Jersey. And there's people with panniers on and they're like uh did you like get dropped in by a helicopter or <laughs> exactly are you from an alien are you from because yeah and but i would also think that like okay there's sort of a halfway point on the white rim where once you're beyond it it's it's easier to keep like there's yeah it's easier to keep going yeah. for, forward and and uh um and we were at that uh, sort of at that point and and with with the um you know, walking through the medical camp and we're just like, okay, you guys, we, we made a plan. We stopped a ways outside and we made the plan. Like, you guys, we're not going, we have enough water to get down to 11,000 feet. We've got, you know, fuel there. We've got food. We've got our extra sets of skis. Mm. This was the plan. We give the medical camp a wide berth. Interesting. But there's radio communication. There's this, there's that, you know, there's, so every, you know, word on the mountain was mm. that, you know, Steve and Scott and Mark had just done this thing and they're on their way down and welcome party. <laughs> and so if, when, and, and then, and we're getting closer and we're like, ah, maybe we can just go get some water. Mm. And then once you once that such a slippery slope yes once you're and it's like it, it is full on out of control careening down that slope it, 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 as soon as you make that decision yeah. and um, and then uh, Meg who was the ranger on you know who was on duty on, on, on patrol at that time you know came out with spam and toasted spam and cheese sandwiches and we're like oh we're fucked (laughs) we are done (laughs) we're done and it was and then but then you know being in that highly sensitized emotional state it was one of the most amazing like human interactions Mm. i've ever had and and uh um so we ended up spending the night there um because in the medical tent you know it makes like okay there's a there's two cots and there's two sleeping bags out there um you guys are three there's also like a big down parka and a pair of down pants and like a thermorest or something. And when you could put that on the, you know, on the plywood floor. And so we eat and we drink and we're just like, ah, fuck. And so we do like, um, you know, Steve's equivalent of rock, paper, scissors, which is Kung Fu fighter, grizzly bear and cowboy. <laughs> and, uh, let's see if you go grizzly and he goes cowboy, grizzly gets shot. Um, Kung Fu guy kicks the gun out of cowboy's hand Grizzly also uh, um, eats Kung Fu guys. So okay. I ended up on the floor. <laughs> uh, but I, t- I tell you, it was like the first time I'd taken like an 800 milligram dose of ibuprofen. Mm. It was amazing. Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, we woke up the next day, went down to, you know, walked down to uh, 11,000, got our skis and our cash, 
skied all the way down to base camp, spent a night there eating everything we could, listening to music, singing, crying. I mean, it was fucking amazing. The next day we skied um, up to the bottom of the south face, recovered the camp and the skis that we'd left up there oh, wow. mm-hmm. to, to, to launch from, yep. got everything back, and then eventually probably the following day flew back out to Talkeetna. And, and then I think all of us agreed that it took about a month to recover. Wow. Like just, just physically like waking up each day, like I'm going to go ride my bike or I'm going to go for a hike in the Flatirons because I was living in Boulder at the time. And, and, uh, and I go, oh, wow. Okay. <clears throat> wow. Maybe not. That's crazy. Yeah. And it was. I mean, I would hope so. It, it, it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. That's interesting. Like that. Because if. Cause, but that's the trip you want. Yeah. I guess we got exactly what we were, I mean, a bit more, but mostly exactly what we were seeking, yeah. you know, in a, in, in a way that, uh, um, adventure of a lifetime, but only one of many, <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's what a story. It's a, it was a, it, I mean, a remarkable experience and then, and both Scott and I essentially retired from hard climbing after that. Interesting. Um, and it was obvious to me with it probably three or four months afterwards. It was like, well, the next logical step is to take this style of single push climbing to the Himalayas. The altitudes are higher, so the acclimatization periods are longer. The Alaska range is beautiful, especially in June. It never got dark. Mm. I mean, I think we were June 24th through 26th or something on the, on the face. And so, yeah, it's like dusk-ish for four hours go to the Himalayas it's going to be dark at some point now you're going to have to like find a route that corresponds to the times where you can do the easy climbing to stay warm and dark and the hard technical climbing just starting right magically when the sun starts warming the face you know <laughs> and so then it, and, and, and everything just takes 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 more and and, uh, and more risk and um, and Scott uh some years older than me he's just like you know i'm done i'm good and he's he stayed climbing i mean he's like hard he just said big mountains not a thing the risk is too great i got two kids you know i'm not pushing that boat out to this day he's still climbing hard frozen waterfalls hard mixed Mm. climbing Mm. in a more controlled environment but nothing in the big mountains so it was up to steve who's younger than both of us and we're like Steve, here's the carry torch. on. Yes, <laughs> best you're, of luck. You're good to go. <laughs> and a couple of years later, he, um, you know, post 9/11, he was on, you know, one of the first teams to go back, go back into Pakistan. Mm. After all that, um, and he climbed a route on K6 uh, by himself in 44 hours um, continuous push, mm. and then up the Andy, a couple of years, two years later, um, where they climbed a new route on Nanga Parbat. Uh, he and Vince Anderson total alpine style like five days up two days down pretty pretty fucking incredible thing and and uh so steve did good with torch (laughs) you know that's cool yeah progress is so interesting but it's and it all starts yeah in the imagination yeah in in the humility part of it in a way of like uh, i see what would it take to do Yeah, it's amazing to think what's next. I can't wait to see what's next on the White Rim. I can't wait to see what's next in climbing. And then to fast forward and just look at what, say, Killian Journey did for Everest. It's like, wait, 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 wait. Time out. 
<laughs> like to so he ruins the curve though right yeah yeah, yeah. i mean all of these things and we, for the uh, listeners what what is his everest record uh 17 hours I like think. what yeah so th- there's an interesting c- sort of progression there and um because uh, a couple of Swiss friends um, of mine f- from back in the day, uh, Erhard Lortan and Jean Troyer, they climbed Everest from the north side, uh, 86, in 43 hours round trip. Mm-hmm. 36 hours up, and then they spent two hours. In 86? Yeah, and they spent two hours on top. Now, is that, is Everest easier technically? Oh, yeah. Okay. I mean, there are, Southwest Face is a hard route, there are. There are, there are different sources of difficulty. Right, right, right. Right, and elevation, and, and being, elevation one of, being one of them. Because right. then, no matter what, you know, and, and and if you you know think about um the 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 trip when uh, and it, I think it must have been a Nat Geo sponsored trip or whatever where they were going to try and find Mallory and Irvine's body because they're trying to recover a camera to see if they actually got to the top and and Conrad Anker was on that trip and and so this final rock step on the um, the, the upper north ridge i guess it would be uh which had the ch- uh, a chinese team had actually fucking bolted a ladder to this rock step and um and i don't remember when that was sometime in the 80s probably uh and and they were able to get a bunch of people on top you know mm. whatever if mallory and irvine had actually you know gotten up there they would have had to free climb that section mm. so <clears throat> conrad's like well i'm gonna i'm gonna check it out i'm gonna go see how hard this is yeah so you know you're basically at 28,000 feet or something and and I think it was he said it was legitimately 510 you know climbing so not super difficult by modern standards but you're you know on the top of the world you're on the top of the world you're wearing big boots you're probably in your crampons you get a down suit you know there's all kinds of other circumstances but still technically that hard which I think in in his mind was the thing like no that standard probably didn't exist back hmm. in the you know in the 20s interesting interesting um, so uh and and especially if they were using oxygen and they're trying to climb that with you know the tanks the tanks and, and yeah, you know, yeah, sh- yeah, you know yeah, crazy yeah. shit like that so um and, and then back then it would have been you know that's full on leader must not fall kind of thing because the ropes weren't any good interesting so you could use the rope to for the second guy safeguard the second guy but the leader is essentially soloing with huh. um, <laughs> with the illusion of security but so, but, and, and, and another funny thing happens sort of at altitude is like, like when you're asking a little bit on the Slovak about, you know, were you scared? And like, well, no, because you get that tired, then the, you know, one of the first things to go away is your ability to be scared. Mm. Same thing at high altitude, like stuff that would freak you the fuck out at a lower elevation, rock fall, stuff like that, you know, like, oh, 23,000 feet. And there's, you know, and then south on Nanga Parbat and there's rocks falling and zinging by our heads. And I'm just like, oh. Well, I'm oh, that, still here. That one didn't have my name on it. <laughs> Which, uh, and and so his, so in '86 they climbed it in you know 36 hours up, hung out for some hours, and then three and a half hours, and they bum slid based the north face. They'd, those guys were masters of figuring that stuff out, and they they had invented sort of the single push climbing in the Himalayas on. Um, at that time, and and, and those, you look at them on the summit of Everest, and there's like nobody's got a pack. On. And they're like, oh, yeah, I got the stove in one pocket and some energy bars over here. You've got a fuel bottle and a pan in your pockets, and yeah, we're good. 
<laughs> like and and they were they started up with Pierre Bejan and his French climber got huge track record in the Himalayas and you know Erhard and Jean were so fit they dropped uh, Pierre and um, and so then you know nothing in terms of speed matched those guys in the ensuing decades and so when Killian went uh, it's 2017 I think right yeah something recently yeah we'll say uh, and the first time he went it I think he, it was 26 it took him 26 hours and I was and I looked at that and I was like hmm okay that's not the leap forward I expected due to the time interval and what we know that Killian can do right apparently he felt the same way because <laughs> he, <went laughs> yeah. he went back which is to me that's like one of the most awesome feats of endurance ever it's just like most people you climb Everest without oxygen you go down you're like okay I'm good I'm done done for maybe my life wait know? did he do that without oxygen oh yeah fuck my life yeah cause, oh my god and Erhard and Zhang did it without oxygen also I mean it, like that is like I, I can't get my mind around that honestly. I don't even know that much about climbing, and that just completely obliterates my brain. But 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 with oxygen, it's and I don't I don't I'm just gonna throw some numbers out, and they might be the, theoretically not wrong, but in detail they probably are. So if you're on four liters a minute and you're standing on the top of Mount Everest, you have reduced the elevation by three or four thousand feet. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, it goes up exponentially. (laughs) Well, well, I'm I'm surprised. I expected more, but the difference between three and four thousand feet is still a lot. Let's just say that you're, you know, you've you've taken it down to under twenty six thousand feet, and you know, so and then my question is like, okay, so have you stood on the top of the world at that point? Fair enough. Um, But it was hypothesized that it was impossible, you know, until seventy eight. And they talked um, about that in Endure. Yeah. It yeah. was hypothesi- hypothesized as impossible. As impossible. Right. And then, you know, Messner and Hobbler did it. And people were like, oh, okay. Let's say that there's a thousand people who've climbed Everest at this point. There's, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to throw it out like fewer than 50. That's me being cynical. Let me, let me be more positive. Fewer than a hundred have climbed it without oxygen. Wow. Um, Which means, I mean, for me and kind of my stance on that, you want to do it in the most natural way possible. Yep, pure way. According to the, you know, all of the, you know, demands of the natural environment. I mean, I'm not saying you know, go naked, but oxygen is one of those things, especially when you've had people, when you didn't carry your shit. Like you carried all your own shit, that's a, you know, okay, that's that's one thing. But if you've, you know, been hiring people to carry your spare oxygen bottles for you to like put in the fixed ropes, put in the camps, that kind of thing. Yeah, you still got to put one foot in front of the other. But it's a completely different experience. It's a completely. It's exactly why we did the white rim fully self-supported. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because if you knew you were racing to a feed zone, a feed zone, (laughs) fifty miles in or whatever, it would have. Alleviate it takes some wilderness stress. out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you're out there at mile 50, the furthest point from the start and finish, and it's just you, there's a lot of self-reliance. Oh, <laughs> nothing but. <laughs> yeah. You know, in, yeah. In, in, in a way. And, and 
And uh, yeah, so when so the twenty six hour uh, time that that Killian posted, and, and he obviously came down and had some, you know, heart to heart with himself. Mixed feelings. Like, uh, I can go back, and then to go back and do it, and then to, to to knock nine hours off, but you know, a week later, that's uh, it's pretty good, pretty damn good. He's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, another yeah. news. <clears throat> We've been talking over two hours. I don't know how that happened. And what's yeah. <laughs> what's what's funny is we've covered. I probably had eight to ten things I wanted to talk to talk about. I think we've talked about two. <laughs> okay. So, what's going to happen is this, this is going to become a series. There's going to be Mark Twight Part One, Mark <laughs> Twight Part Two, Mark. Part... <clears throat> so I'm going to be coming through Salt Lake City. Good. But um, we didn't even Good. talk about the fact that you have a. Like, I was, I was, I was excited to, to ask it, you questions it, about podcasting. Yeah, um, I was excited. Did, yeah, I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you about, but they can I, wait. They'll wait. If you come through, I, let's see. I think also, we're, yeah. Let's make it a series. We'll make it happen because uh, we need at least one more. Yeah, because I want to talk about the bike. Bike, I there. I mean. The black and white theme, your photography, the podcast, the the philosophical side, the I mean it's just it could go on and on and on. So anyway. All right. Let's say uh three, two, one. We're done. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. That's part one. Part two coming to you a week from now. Part three parts three through ten coming ASAP. Thank you all for listening. As always, The Adventure Stash is edited and produced by Lily McKelvin. If you'd like to support the show, it would mean very much to us. You can go to patreon.com slash theadventurestash to become a sustaining member. Also, please just spread the word. Um, subscribe on iTunes. Give us a rating, a review. All of that is continuing to help us build steam. Uh, we have a new offering now, some show notes Every week, there are now show notes associated with each episode. So, for example, with this Mark Twight episode, um, there are links with timestamps associated with the episode uh, involving, you know, maybe some of the books he's written, uh, some articles regarding uh, his fastest known time on Denali, all that sort of thing. You can subscribe to that as an email list if you like just email the adventure stash at paceandmckelvin.com or you can go to my website paceandmckelvin.com click on the adventure stash tab there'll be a little drop down menu there with a show notes option and they're all listed out there and uh you can go visit that anytime thank you all for listening and we will catch you next week with more mark twight